Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, October 17th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Good morning. Congratulations, Freehold. Mm-hmm. But that's not the sports story of the weekend. We'll get to a, I mean, we, we could do a, can we do a four hour radio show on Tennessee, Alabama? <laughs> I mean, I, what a I just phenomenal. Like, I'd like to watch the game again. I am as big a college football fan as you could ever imagine. And, and I don't remember, I mean, I'm not saying it's the greatest game I ever saw. I mean, that's kind of a, um, uh, we all say that he's the best player I ever saw. He's that's the greatest game I've ever seen. It's fresh in memory, but I'm telling you, man, that was a, just an absolute fantastically played um, I mean, they had all the ebbs and flows, all the ups and downs, all the um, I don't know, the weirdness of a um, back and of a forth, high profile. The, I mean, the, it was the high just, score. It was a great, great college football game. Um, and college football's better if Tennessee is relevant. I mean, I'm convinced of that, especially if you're an SEC guy. Um, that's another really good team to beat in the East. But um, but the the game of college football is better if Tennessee is relevant, and they are relevant. I mean, give Josh Heupel a lot of credit. Former um former player at Oklahoma, coach at Central Florida. Um, they pluck him away, and in his second year, he's got Tennessee on track. I mean, I'm not saying they are. They got to go to Athens. How's that working out for you? Mm-hmm. Welcome Alabama into your town, town, and then a couple of weeks later, have to go to Athens and play um, the Georgia Bulldogs. Um, could we argue? Oh, here's the SEC Homer argument. You ready? Could we argue? that the three best teams in college football are all in the same conference. I mean, I'm not saying they are, but could we argue that Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee are the three best teams in America and they all play in the same league? I mean, we've had the argument about Georgia and Alabama are the two best teams in America in the same conference um, to, to, to kind of get the ACC folks riled up the uh, and the Big Ten crowd riled up this morning. Let's, um, let's argue that the three best teams in college football today are are, um, I mean, I think Alabama's better. I was say, if you consider that Alabama is still in the top three. Well, of course. I mean, you okay. know, yeah. I mean, I think Bryce Young is still getting better. Um, Alabama, and they made some mistakes. The, the most penalties they've ever had under a Nick Saban coach team. Um, they made a just a, a terrible decision on special teams. Tennessee deserved to win the game. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Tennessee outplayed Alabama, but I still say roster for roster, player for player, Alabama's a touch better than Tennessee. But a big, big win for the Tennessee program. Um, a big congratulations to Josh Eiffel for getting Tennessee as far down this road as quickly as they have. Now, we'll see. They go to Athens and play a really good Georgia team. Um, Just but, as a, wa- a viewer, it was fun to watch. Oh, it's, and, it was a crazy and the game celebration to watch. after the end was when they stormed the field. I mean, well, I mean tore when, down when the goalposts. When, when you get my age and you've watched as much college football as I have, you're not impressed with much. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, 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 that's a good game. I mean, yeah. They're a good team. They're good players. No, that, that was um, quite the spectacle. Those two blue bloods of college football going at it. Um, but you ain't seen the last last of Alabama. I'll assure you that. Um, Saban said you got to play with more mental. Um, what did he say? I mean, uh, 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 you got to be more focused. I mean, he came up with some coachy word, but he said, you know, we can't have that many penalties, that many mistakes. He gave a lot of congratulations to Tennessee because Saban does that. I mean, he congratulates the other team for being ready to play, having good players, a good game plan. But he said we got to clean up a lot of the issues that I mean that, that we can't really control how well Tennessee plays or not, except you know with the players we put on the field. But we can't make the mistakes we made over and over again. I'll say this about college football: um, it's time to pay referees. It's time to have full-time referees. I mean, the officials struggled. I mean, they really did. They struggled. They're part-time officials. I mean. 
college football is not a hobby anymore. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar sector of the sports and entertainment economy. And I just look around at some of the universities and some of the conferences and some of the um, television deals and how much money's out there floating around in college football land. It's time to have full-time I officials. I didn't realize they weren't full-time. No, they're full part-time officials. I mean, the, wow. the, the guy sells insurance, you know, Monday, okay. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, but I mean, once again, the NFL has a different model. It's time college football adjusts that. And I'm glad. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been good enough to play defensive back anyway. I don't know who can play DB in college football today. you got these big athletic wide receivers, and you've got defensive backs who can't touch them. I mean, they can't. It's just it's unfair. I mean, it really and truly is. I understand offense sales and 52-49, you know, in a, in a Southeastern Conference shootout. Um, I mean, that would have been 10-7, to 7, you know, 15 years ago between LSU and Alabama. But the rules have changed as such. And I'm telling you, Rev, a defensive back has no chance now. I mean, he just doesn't. Um, you underthrow the ball. The, the, the defender tried, excuse me, the receiver tried to get back to the ball, and the defender runs into him and his pass interference. You overthrow him and he have incident. I mean, it's just it's real. I watched that game and a lot of other college games. I'm just, um, I'm just glad that I'm not trying to play defensive back in college football today because it is, um, it's almost unfair. I mean, it's almost impossible to play. The other sports story, we owe Freehold a congratulatory um, moment or yep. two. Um, he beat us. So, so here's the deal with baseball. You ready? Um, the Phillies finished 14 games down to the Braves and Mets. Third in the division. The Braves and Mets are gone. The Dodgers finished 22 games behind the Padres. The Dodgers are gone. So the two teams represented the National League. The Padres behind the Dodgers. The Padres behind the Dodgers. The two teams represented the National League in the Divisional Championship Series. Now the League Championship Series finished collectively, what, 22, 40, 36 games out of first place. I mean, is that good? I mean, I'm not picking on the Phillies. I'm not picking on the Padres. Um, the Phillies won it fair and well, square. Well, sure they, they did. They, I mean, they, they outplayed played, the Braves. The, the, much better than the, the Braves. The Braves played with a sense of entitlement. The Phillies played hungry. I mean, they were hungry. They kind of looked like the Braves last year. I mean, they really did. They, they were just hungry. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they wanted it more than the Braves. And the Braves played like and the Dodgers. I didn't watch much of the Dodger series, but, but I heard that they played a little bit entitled as well. Why do we have to play this team that we beat in the regular season by 22 games? And the Braves said, why do we have to play this team that we um, basically lapped in the regular season by 14 games? It's playoff baseball. You can like it or not. It's to um, it's to engage a larger audience of fans. In other words, if you're a Phillies fan and the last month of the season you're you know, 10, 12, 14 games out of first place, what interest do you have in the game? But if you're still vying for a wild card to get your foot in the door to give you a chance to get hot at the right time, I mean, I understand the argument of wild card baseball it makes a lot of more it makes a lot more teams and fan bases relevant in the game of major league baseball but what does it say about baseball i mean why does baseball have 162 game season then why don't we just shorten the season to you know 80 games 81 games instead of 100 what what does winning the regular season mean now it means nothing i mean it really and truly means nothing because you get in a five game set you get a hot pitcher or a hot bat like the Phillies did, or the Padres for that matter, and all that work you did over 162 games is thrown in the, out of the way. Now, once again, the Phillies and Padres deserve it. I mean, they, they're, I'm not saying they don't deserve it. The point I'm trying to make is, um, what does it say about 162-game regular season? The grind of the regular season that the Dodgers, Braves, and Mets were the three best teams in baseball, and by late Saturday afternoon, <laughs> all three of those teams were, as we say, at the house. 
and the Padres <laughs> and Phillies are preparing for a National League championship and in, series. In all fairness, uh, throughout almost almost the entire season, the Mets were actually the best season, the best team in the National League East. But the Braves called them in the 162 game regular season, and that's what this past year will be known for. If you're a Braves fan, the year they caught the Mets, you know, with a ten and a half game lead in 162 games. I'm not saying it's bad or good. But, but you play 162 games in a regular season to decide what? Who the best teams in baseball are. And by that method, the best teams in baseball aren't playing in the National League. They are. I mean, if the Yankees beat the um, the Guardians, Indians, um, they, they'll kind of match up against the Astros, which I guess would have been the two best teams in the American League, so it holds true to form. But in the National League, I mean, the point I'm trying to make is, what does that say about Major League Baseball's 162-game season? When the two teams playing were a collective 36 games out of first place. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Roger in Coward. Good morning, Roger. Good morning. Well, you know you stole all my thunder on both accounts, football and baseball. And this is not about the Braves. Um, for me, you know, even though I pull for them like uh, uh, y'all do, but it's not about that. Um but first of all, going back to your first thing, you know, I don't know how any defensive back plays defense. You can't. I mean, it, it's ridiculous to even put them back there. Just charge everybody at the line, just blitz everybody and try to get the quarterback because you can't play defense if you play defensive back anyway. They won't let you do anything. So it's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Um, I got a, I've got a proposal for Major League Baseball. If they're going to do it this way, that goes even further when you're talking about fan bases. We all know that football is number one uh, in America now. Baseball is relegated to second or third or whatever. That being the case, why don't you, and they're called the boys of summer, why don't you just play the regular season in June and July, play maybe 60 games over two months, let everybody in the playoffs starting in August, just let everybody in. It would be a more fair system than what they, this joke of a system they've got up now. I mean, I don't understand how anybody can get excited about a World Series that's going to pit maybe the best team in the American League against maybe the third or fourth best team in the National League. I mean, what's, you know, if you Phillies fan, yeah, I guess you can get excited about it, but it doesn't mean anything. It, it really means nothing. Um, but why, like you said, Play 60 games, let them all in the playoffs. Then we get all the fan bases excited. Uh, you know, doing it that way doesn't mean anything, but we can, we can get excited doing that. Play 60 games, get the playoffs over with by the time football starts, because football's number one anyway. Uh, you know, that would be the absolute best system if you're going to go with this joke of a system. Thank I mean, you, Roger. What? Well, I mean, I, I, I knew when you said it was Roger, I knew that's where he would be. I told Rev, I said he'll rant about this, you this regular right. season. Uh, what, what if we did this? Somebody texted me yesterday. Um, as a Braves fan, what are your feelings? Congratulations to the Phillies. The Phillies didn't build this system. The Padres didn't build this system. I mean, you know, the, 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 the Philly fan knows in their heart that they kind of backed into this. But, but the Braves were, weren't. I mean, they won how many games last year? 87? Yeah. I mean, I, I understand. 80. Here's what I would argue. Because um, I'm thinking about a way to reward a team for winning a national, excuse me, a regular season championship. What if the Braves and Philly started? Excuse me. What if the um, w- w- yeah, what if the Braves and Philly started a series and the Braves are already up one nothing? 
Well, the Padres and Dodgers started a series in California, and the Dodgers were already up one to nothing. What if there's some weighted way of doing this? The Rodgers got an interesting idea. Shorten the regular season, let everybody in the playoffs, and let's just have a um, kind of a let's have fun for 60 games, and then let's get down to business and let some, I guess, seed teams based on what their record was in that 60 um, game. Uh, I don't know what the right answer is, but there, there are many, many Philly and Dodgers, excuse me, Philly and Padre fans today who are purist at heart. And no, this season has somewhat of an asterisk beside it, but but they didn't build the system. But there's not a single Phillies fan or Phillies players that sat in a meeting with Major League Baseball and said, hey, design this thing so if you get 14 games. What I'm arguing is the home field advantage. I mean, if you're really looking as a baseball purist, the home field advantage is not a big enough advantage for winning the regular season by 14 and 22 games. But there should be some weighted way to reward the Braves and Mets and Dodgers for their their work done in the regular season. And I think, I mean, it's kind of weird to say this, but um, when the Phillies and Braves take the field in game one, it's already one nothing. When the Dodgers and Padres take the field for game one, it's already one to nothing. How can that be? Because the Dodgers won that in the regular season. The Braves and Mets won that in the regular season. Um, but once again, or just let's, let's all agree, that in, in, in today's construct of Major League Baseball, the 162-game regular season, I mean, there was a long time in baseball, Rev, only two teams made it to the, to the playoffs, the National League champion and the American League champion, and they played one another for the World Series championship. Now, now you've got to play a three-game set, then a five-game set, then a seven. You see where I'm headed? I mean, you've got to get a lot of things to break your way. And I mean, it does add competition. It does add the the unknown, the, 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 um, the ingredient that we love about College football. I mean, why do we love March Madness? Let's talk about college basketball for a second. Why do we love March Madness? Cinderella story. Sure. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There's a Butler out there somewhere. There's a Villanova out there somewhere. There's a Phillies and and Padres out there somewhere. Once again, I'm not disparaging by any stretch the Phillies because here's what I knew. I'd seen the Phillies and Braves play enough this year. I knew it was going to be a battle. I mean, I knew they had some arms on that Phillies staff that could contend. But, but Freehold said this earlier in the year. The Braves are going to probably catch the Mets because of the depth of their pitching staff. The depth of your pitching staff really doesn't matter that much in a five-game series. It doesn't matter that much in one of these short series. So you build a team for 162 games, and all of a sudden you've got to say, okay, this is the roster that I had to maximize my potential in a 162-game season. You tear that up and throw it in the trash and say, okay, I've got to really look at my team now as if it were not running a marathon but rather a 100-yard dash. Um, so, so, you know, I understand Major League Baseball's intent is to find the Villanova, to find the Butler, to find the Cinderella story that the, the country becomes infatuated with. I certainly understand that. But, but the 162-game season that is the grind of Major League Baseball has to be worth something. And to me, it's not worth enough. I mean, I'm not saying the Braves got screwed, the Mets got screwed, the Dodgers got screwed. You know what they had a chance to do? They had a chance to beat the Phillies. They had a chance to beat the Padres. And they simply <laughs> did not. But my recommendation, I'll, I'll go along with what, Roger? Let's shorten the regular season. Let's make every or either a higher percentage of the team. And let's admit that, hey, this is not your grandfather's Major League Baseball. This is a different model. Or let's wait the playoffs to a point of giving the Braves a win before any game is ever played and giving the Dodgers a win That's before every game. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's interesting, yeah. but, you know. Um, yeah, because really when it comes down to it, the business of baseball, I mean, how many home games do you get over the course of a season? The Braves put over 3 million fans in the seats over the course of mm -hmm. however many games they mm -hmm. play at home. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's the business of Major League Baseball. It's all Fans in seats, 
concessions. Well, but, but, but here's what you know. You know that, that beer major, sales. major League Baseball is a business, but college football is too. I mean, the Tennessee-Alabama uh, uh, game. I bet mean, it was a spectacle of college football. It was one of the best college football games I've ever seen. But it's still a business. I mean, it's all a huge, huge business enterprise. What do I say about politics? The same applies to sports and entertainment. Follow the money. 843-661-0937. Let's go to a call, then we'll take our first break. Here's Jamie. Morning. You're on the air. Good morning, guys. It was a wonderful weekend for football. Um, congratulations to your game, Cox. Uh, Ken, y'all had a good weekend. We did. You sure did. And listen, I'd I, love to play in that league you guys play in, but that's wishful <laughs> thinking. <laughs> listen, uh, you know, I'm, I've just gotten back home and I found out something this weekend very disturbing that um, the high school coach is one of the coaches in, in South Carolina, in Darlington making a hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year is that correct i saw an article jam over the weekend that there are a far more high school football coaches making over a hundred thousand dollars a year than i ever imagined my dad told me when i said i want to go into coaching he said son you'll stay broke don't ever yep. get into coaching because there's nobody in that business that makes any money it's a different animal now well it is and uh but <laughs> that guy does not deserve to stay there um they and I mean, a coach should be making about thirty-five thousand, just like the teachers do, and I, that just is, is disturbing to me. And that's what I have to say. Thank you, JM. How good is the coach? Appreciate the call, JM. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I mean, is a really good. How much is a really good high school football coach worth? I mean, is Saban worth what he's getting made? What he's getting paid is Dabo worth what he's getting paid? I mean, people at Clemson would argue Dabo's probably the best investment they've ever made. Same holds true in Alabama. Um, what is a good high school football coach worth and how many bad ones are making over $100,000 a year? There's another question. 843-661-0937. Take a quick break. Be back in just a minute. Everything includes a lot of sports over the weekend. 843-661-0937. Our number takes Mondays to make Fridays. What is the biggest story of the sports weekend for me? It's the Tennessee-Alabama football game. I mean, there's no doubt about it, but Major League Baseball this time of the year, October, still has a place of precedent in um in the sports fans. Uh, I don't know, Rev. Um, in his in his viewing spectrum, mm-hmm. so to speak. But the Tennessee Alabama game was one for the ages, no doubt about it. Um, I mean, I heard all that it's the greatest game ever. Well, I mean, you said that last year, you know, <laughs> the year before when Ohio State played such and such, and when Southern Cal played. No, it was a it was a phenomenal football game, quite the entertaining affair. Let's go to the phone, Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. Morning, gentlemen. My question is, um, so so this whole thing with with, with Biden uh, at begging OPEC to uh, uh, not announce their gas cut until uh, or their oil cut until after the midterms. Ken, this has got to play some kind of way, don't it? And I, I know you haven't really started on today's topic yet, but. Uh, you know, this is what time I have to call. So I just wondering what you guys take on that was. Boy, it just sure, sure does seem like that should be a, something to get impeached over. So something really to get impeached over, trying to uh, uh, sway the the the, uh, the election results. Uh, you guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. I mean, when you mm-hmm. when you depend on Saudi Arabia, you know, when you d- decide to not uh, produce as much energy as you possibly can, you get yourself in a dependent situation. Saudi Arabia. 
is kind of the um I mean they, they're the uh, the force du jour in global energy production as long as they dominate uh, along with the uh, other OPEC nations OPEC plus I think Russia is the um most obvious re excuse me the most obvious member of OPEC outside of the Middle East but um I mean it's just it's a reflection on national energy policy and our you know commitment to green energy uh, over fossil fuel and um, the unrealistic goals and ambitions we have, uh, whether it's a um, you know trying to affect the outcome of an election or not, it's um, it still it, it, it addresses the the great mistake we're making relating to to how we produce energy in this country and the fact that we're going to get ourselves in um in quite the quandary by quandary by depending on countries that um that could care less how well America does in the grand scheme of things. So that's the argument, uh, you know, an impeachable offense. I mean, I would imagine if the Republicans were in charge, they would argue this is similar to um, I'm withholding some of the um, some of the diplomatic funds or foreign aid or whatever that Trump got in trouble for, quote unquote. But um, but but to me, it's a it, it's a classic example of um, not pursuing energy independence and by default, depending on some of the cartel uh, that we know as OPEC that has for so long dominated, you know, what the price of energy is going to be. Seventy eight dollars is kind of the target price. Um, for for OPEC, I mean that's kind of their number, their extraction fees, their 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 the price it costs to get a barrel of oil out of the ground in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia in particular, is so much less than it is at other places around the world. Russia's not even as cheap as Saudi Arabia; it's cheaper than America and some of the other Western countries. But um, but but the 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 overriding narrative is the Western world has decided in its state of wokeness to become less energy producing, more energy dependent as they, uh, not me, but they others, uh, some of the Western leadership says this transitioning from fossil fuel to green energy that will save the planet and uh, preserve humankind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, good luck with that. Um, but but it is just going to create a, 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 a never ending storyline of the, the Middle East having a lot of leverage and influence on, you know, elections in America the price of gas or not. It's kind of interesting. The left refuses to use the word recession. The media refuses to use the word recession. Some of the academic economists refuse to use the word uh, recession. The day the Republican majority gets sworn in, it'll be recession, recession, <laughs> recession. And, um, you know, the, the Biden policies were staving off as hard as they could. Oh, yeah. The impending recession and these Republicans got in charge and look at what they've done and how quickly um, they did it. Eight four three six. Kind of already started that with inflation. Biden made a speech last week where he actually said, "If you elect these Republicans and put them in charge of Congress, uh, you can better believe that inflation is going to go through the roof." Sure. Uh, well, I mean, if you depend on Saudi Arabia, <laughs> let let me say this in one sentence. You ready? If we depend on Saudi Arabia to provide the oil necessary to power the global economy or power the Western economy, we're going to be at their mercy. We're going to be at OPEC's mercy, but I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. So you've got the Saudi royal family and you've got Putin, and we're going to bank on them doing the right thing in regards to cutting the Western world a break on our need uh, for you know fossil fuel generated power and our willingness or unwillingness uh, to produce it. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I still want to go back real quick because Jam made an interesting point. I saw the story about coaches, and I'm thinking about Josh Heupel. You know, um, what is Hypo worth at Tennessee? What is Saban worth at Alabama? What is Dabo worth at um, at Clemson? I mean, we know Saban and Dabo have cemented their legacy. If Dabo Sweeney doesn't win another game, I wish he wouldn't, but he will. Um, <laughs> but if Dabo doesn't win another game, 
I mean, he's I mean, he's one of the greatest investments ever. I was thinking about the greatest hire in the history of college sports. I was thinking about this over the weekend. Um, Dabo would have to be a mention. There's no doubt about it. I mean, a wide receiver coach who was selling insurance, I think, was out of coaching for a period of time, and you kind of pluck him out of the um, – I mean, as an interim coach, I think he may have beat South Carolina that year to save his job, so to speak, or to convince – the, the you know the hierarchy at Clemson that this guy's worth giving a shot and um and people laughed at him I mean I, myself included I thought it was a bit you know jokey happy camp you know we're going to there's greatness in this team and we're going to do all these wonderful things and nobody bought into that except Debo and some of the Clemson faithful and some of the Clemson hierarchy so um I, I came up with this I think Debo Sweeney is probably the second greatest college hire that I can remember the greatest is Coach K at at Duke. I mean, Duke basketball was a kind of an also-ran, a has-been, middle-of-the-pack, so to speak, had no sort of um impact in the world of college basketball like they do now. But, I mean, it's Duke. I mean, Duke's as big a brand as there is in college basketball today. And I think Coach K's hiring, I mean, he got some pedigree. He played for Bobby Knight, I think, was or was an assistant for – anyway, he had some connection to Bobby Knight, so the Knight coaching tree, so to speak. But I think Duke hiring Coach K at, at, to, to coach men's basketball and Clemson hiring Dabo to coach their football program were just, I mean, just, I, mean not, I don't want to say home run. They were grand slam, double grand slam hires that led to those programs being um, as relevant in today's college athletics as they are. Now, Coach K stayed a long, long time, broke a lot, a lot of records. Um, you know, Dabo's got a couple of national championships. Uh, they, you know, they revere Ford in Tiger Town, but Dabo's got twice the championships that Danny Ford does. Um, to the Clemson fans, who's most near and dear to your heart, Danny Ford or Dabo Sweeney? I mean, you can't say well both are. I mean, that's not the question. Uh, if you had to pick one or the other to be the, um, I mean, if other words, if 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 Clemson could only put one former coach or current coach into their um, sports Hall of Fame, who would it be? Danny Ford. Because he kind of epitomized Clemson. You know what I mean? He was um, uh, kind of a country boy, done good, um, humble man. Uh, you know what I mean? Real grassrootsy sort of um, personality. Um, just a good and decent man is what he is. And um, got no forward a little bit in my campaigning days. And just a genuinely good, good, um, humble person. Um, Remember it, we interviewed him yeah, on the show did, one yeah. time? Well, I mean, I, he, he was out in the field. But he told me on the phone like, like an hour before. He said, call me at exactly 410. Now, don't call me at 415. Because I got this routine, and at 410, I'll be on the farm at a place that sales service picks up. And he kept saying that, because I, I had a Gamecock fan of mine who's good friends with Ford, and he connected me with Danny Ford. I mean, you know, we think these two programs hate one another, and one Saturday a year, I guess they do. But a Gamecock friend of mine, um, you know, kind of in the in the brass at South Carolina, knew Coach Ford real well so through some of their um, business dealings, and he said, oh, I got him lined up for you now. You got to call him at 410. And he said, don't call him at 412 or 413 because he'll be a place on the farm. Where, <laughs> and when I called him, he put me on hold for like 10 minutes because he was watering the cows. Yeah. And he said he was running behind. And I could hear something in the background. It wasn't a moo, but I could hear something <laughs> in the background. And I finally got to the phone. But, yeah, if you're, if you're a Clemson fan and you can only put one football coach in your athletic hall of fame, who would it be? Dabo Sweeney or Danny Ford? Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. Kid, y'all had it right. You got it right. Bennett Biden said that, that we're, you and I were told about it last week, that when the Republicans, if the Republicans take power, that the inflation will go up. And, you know, and what he left out was, he 
is they'll have to blame, they'll do nothing for public Congress, they'll blame for inflation. There'll probably be a black person all killed by a racist white cop. You'll have Antifa, BLM, Occupy Wall Street type groups burning cities again and making life so miserable here in America that we'll do anything and everything we can to get, get to find peace. All of that stuff is going to happen. Um, I was afraid of I even heard Glenn Beck say the same thing. Now, Glenn Beck is of the opinion that in five years, the dollar is going to tighten too. And then I was also, about the same time, talking to a friend of mine, you know, we bought a accountant, and he said, you know, Breeze, um, really, it would take, I told him what you were saying about interest rates, he said it would probably take 20% interest rates to really bring down inflation. Of course, that would destroy everything on the other side. You know, he said, because this government stuff is what screwed everything up. All this extra money that's got thrown into the economy artificially, he got to drain it out some way. But um, it's going to take more workforce participation, and it's also going to take, we're going to have to do energy. But again, that's, that is if you want to fix it. I don't believe they want to fix it. I just wonder what your thoughts are. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I mean, I read a lot over the weekend um, it's obvious that people weren't, aren't as excited about Kentucky, excuse me, about Tennessee, Alabama as I am. They want to get back to Biden. and the, uh, We're 22 days for the midterm, and I get that. Um, I, I just, I mean, I, I am such a sucker for great college football. I mean, I am such a sucker. And then I turned to USC and um, Southern California, the other USC, and Utah, and that game goes down to the, to the end. But I want to go back to what Bree said, because I, th- there's some language out there that is unfamiliar to most of you. Um, that's why you got me to be the expert in fields of um of um, the unknown. There, there's something called the quantitative easing doom loop. Um, can you unwind? In other words, there, when a business gets so debt ridden that it can't figure out a way to get out of it, it I mean, there there are ways to. I mean, chapter eleven, chapter thirteen, chapter seven. I mean, there are a lot of bankruptcy laws that come into play. Um, so, so is the um. I'm going to give you, it's kind of a weird, on Wall Street, there's a product for everything. There's something actually got there now called the monetary debasement insurance. Uh, Breeze is talking about the decline of the dollar. I predicted that. To take it for what it's worth, I'm not an economist. I'm not someone who's revered in the field of finance and politics. But I do believe in the quantitative easing doom loop. And I do believe that it's going to lead to an eventual decline of the dollar. I understand the dollar's in strong standing now, but it's not in strong standing because America's um, really been fiscally responsible. I mean, it's it's it's, it's in demand because, or excuse me, it's in um, a, a strong position because the other currencies aren't as um, they're more frowned upon than the dollar is. It's nothing to do with the dollar. It's more about the other foreign economies, some of the um the, the, the socialist European models that have led to uh, the debasement of their currency, to the devaluing of their currency. But there's actually a Boston-based investment management company now that is offering a strategy and a product um, kind of centered around or focused on um, monetary debasement insurance. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because there are some people out there. I mean, I would be a central bank skeptic. Um, the the foremost centrist, central bank skeptic in the world is a guy named Larry Lepard, L-E-P-A-R-D. I mean, he's one of these 40-year gurus in finance and, and Wall Street and he's come up with this model, kind of like um, synthetic derivatives and, you know, all these products that got us in such a bad uh, way. Um, you, you know, the bundling of uh, mortgages and the insurance based upon, you know, what the mortgages may or the, the, the likelihood they may or may not. We're getting in the weeds now. 
But this guy has a, um, and this is why I take him serious. You ready? He's an MBA from Harvard Business School. Uh, and he's got 40 years in the uh, on the street, so to speak. And he's talking about this um, this monetary debasement insurance that um, he believes, as I do. Now, he can explain it a lot more um, academic and scholarly than I can. But he believes we're heading to a crash of the dollar. In other words, the dollar is not strong. The dollar is just strong against some of the other, you know, screw-ups around the world. Some of these other, once again, the socialist European model by and large. But, um, but he believes the dollar will eventually lose about half its value. And when it does, the, uh, the standard of living based on what that dollar is worth will begin a dramatic decline. And once again, this is the quantitative easing doom loop. I mean, this is the stuff Glenn Beck likes. And I'm turning more into Beck every day. But I mean, I'm the biggest conspiracy theorist inside of Alex Jones um, that you could imagine. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, look up a guy named um, Larry Lepard, L-E-P-A-R-D, and this argument he makes about um, – about the dollar, the deva- or the eventual devalue of the dollar, and how that devaluing of the dollar, the decline of the dollar, will be commiserate with a quality of life or a standard of living. It doesn't have anything to do with quality of life. A standard of living that is based on the dollar standing um, versus global currencies, and why he believes there's big trouble headed our way, real big mm-hmm. trouble heading our way. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. I want to make sure I follow you here. Since okay. so you're saying there you're is following n- Larry Lepard now, not Ken. Well, okay, okay. but he's through, the expert through you. Okay. you. You found him, and you found this that they're this. so they actually created a a product you could buy. Basically, it's an insurance product ag- against the dollar against the economy of our country. Correct. He 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 <laughs> ascribes to the same well, notion that I do. Now he says it a little bit differently. If I'm not mistaken, he says. Um, that fiat has ruined price discovery, and as a result, we're all going to pay a significant price. The fiat currency, the printing, the 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 unlimited printing of money, has led to a. I mean, it's ruined price discovery. I mean, price discovery is simply a um a reflection of what you think it's worth, what what you're willing to sell, and I'm willing to buy. I mean, that that in essence is what price discovery is, and it's based on a lot of things, the variables, supply and demand, state of the economy. Uh, you know, the way you perceive things to be as a buyer, the way I perceive things to be as a seller. And he says that Fiat has so ruined the realities of price discovery that we don't know which end is up, so to speak. So, yeah, I mean, he's got this product, uh, monetary debasement insurance, and um, it's pretty popular. And, and he's no moron. I mean, he gets, he gets accused a lot of being a perma bear. You know what I mean? He is one of these. Um, I mean, that's, that's going to. I mean, if you hear him on CNBC. They would say, yeah, but man, you're always a doom and gloomer. You know what I mean? You're always uh, one of these guys who believes the market is going down. Um, and we shall see. But yeah, he has created a product in his um, investment company that allows you to bet or insure yourself against the realities of um, of monetary debasement, in particular, the dollar. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry. Good morning. I'm going to try not to put on my, my economist hat, and I'm going to try to just put on my regular dude walking around the street. I'm going I'm to pose this back to you. So you're telling me that there's a guy who believes that the dollar is basically going to be worthless. And what he's done is created a product where he takes all your dollars. What's he going to do with them? I don't think he says it's going to be worthless. He said there's going to be a dramatic decline in the, uh, in the value of the dollar, and the value of the dollar will lead to a standard of living uh, that and declines he, as well. And in, and in response to that, he's taking your dollar. His company is going to be the one holding all these dollars. Correct. What, 
what's he doing? What are you, what are you gonna if cash crypto be, in with, Barry? Be worse, but less, but, but isn't that kind of the argument? But Larry, isn't that kind of the argument? Crypto? What is crypto worth? How many dollars? No, no. But what I'm saying is, yeah. So you give your dollars and you trade crypto, right? Mm-hmm. So somebody had to take your dollars. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't sound to me like he's a bear on the dollar because he's going to be the one that's going to be holding dollars that he says are going to be declining. And hey, his company would be left holding the bag. So what is he doing with them? I would imagine he's, he's, he's scaling. I mean, I would imagine he's scaling his price based upon what he believes the dollar to eventually be. In other words, you'll get a million dollars worth of insurance and you'll pay $5 million for it. Right. So, so maybe so, but I'm just saying in my economist brain, I can do that with you. But in my everyday walking around brain, I just keep thinking, why does he want your dollars so badly? Uh, put your economist hat on for just a second. Got two minutes here, a minute and a half. Um, right. If somebody buys crypto and that crypto is worth $1,000, aren't they buying the crypto because they don't trust the dollar? But if they ever cash the crypto in, it's going to be cashed in with dollars? They are, but the person that sold them the crypto is really on the opposite side of the trade. That's my point. If you sell a stock, you think it's as high as it's going to go. And if somebody buys it, they think it's going higher. If you sell a crypto, you're selling it to somebody who believes in its future value, but you no longer do. So this is a guy who's selling something and buying something. He's buying dollars. If you're buying dollars, then you're not bearish on it. You're bullish on it. Unless you're buying at such a reduced rate. Thank you, Barry. I mean, uh, Larry, I'm sorry we got to cut you off, but he's got a hard break in about five seconds, unless he wants to hang on continue the conversation. No, and I see what Larry's saying. Um, don't have time to explain. Let's wait on the other side. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. I want to go back to the, uh, some of the conversation. The central bank skeptic Larry Lepard, L-E-P-A-R-D. I don't have any idea whether the guy's right or not, but he offers a very interesting product. I mean, he's a Boston-banked investment management firm. Um, but but his, his strategy is focused right now on this particular product. Rev said um, he thinks Bitcoin will be $2 million mm-hmm. in five years. Yeah, I, was doing a, I was doing a search for uh, some sound bites and some things that Larry Lepard has said. Now, first of all, Google and YouTube bring up a lot of Def Leppard stuff, as you can imagine. <laughs> they think I'm trying to type in Def Leppard. But once I got through that, I was seeing things like Bitcoin to $2 million, uh, the doom cycle he talked about. The, the quantitative easing doom loop. But but here's the point I'm making, and Larry kind of talked a little bit about this, and Breeze asked earlier today, said, you know, t- he, he was talking to someone in Mount Pleasant about finance and the investing world and where we're going to end up. And the point I've tried to make, and, and this is what I'm sure about, we've never been where we are. Now, now, what tomorrow holds and what the dollar will be worth five years, I mean, I'm speculating like anybody else. I mean, I read 100 opinions from 100 experts. Some are, some have MBAs from Harvard Business. Some don't. Some have done extremely well in playing the bear side of the market. Some have done extremely well playing the bull side of the market. But I think to suggest that there's a precedent to deal with what we're dealing with today, what does the interest rate have to be to address the, the problem of inflation in America today? I mean, I hear experts on CNBC every morning. I, I hear, you know, Bloomberg experts saying uh, Wall Street Journal has writers that write about this and that and the other. They podcast about a lot of things. The point I've tried to make consistently is we've never been where we are today. We've never been $31 trillion in debt uh, while, while the Fed simultaneously has $8 trillion worth of or nearly $9 trillion worth of debt on its balance sheet. 
So, so when Larry Lepard or the the chair of the Wall Street, excuse me, the um the chair of the New York Stock Exchange or the editor editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, I mean they're, they're to be listened to. I mean these guys aren't morons. I mean they know what they're talking about, but nobody knows what it's going to take to curtail or control inflation. I mean we talked a little bit last week week about it reversing inflation. Um, it, it's we're in uncharted territory. We're in a place that we've never ever been. And here's the point I made: if Volcker believed that the only way to get after inflation, so to speak, was to so aggressively raise rates that the the Fed fund rate was 19 percent, I mean, we weren't in as bad a shape then as we are now. Well, we got a bigger and more dynamic economy, yet burdened by a tremendous amount of government governmental debt and the Fed's balance of quantitative easing and zero percent interest rates. Um, there is no easy answer here. The, the bizarre, the bizarre storyline to me is how many smart people keep believing that there's an easy answer here. You know, this is a blip on the radar. I don't buy that. I mean, I think this is a fundamental reset. I think fiat currency, I mean, as, um, as Larry Lepard said earlier, I think fiat currency is so distorted. Um, what, what the, um, what the, what price discovery is, what is the value of the market today? What is a, a share of Apple stock worth today? I mean, fiat currency has obviously distorted some of those market realities beyond belief. But how far beyond belief? I don't have any idea. No, nobody really knows the answers to these questions. Larry said, I've got an economist hat. I've got a Joe Blow hat. I'm going to wear the Joe Blow hat for a, um, for a while. To me today, I think the Joe Blow answer is probably as good as the economist answer because there, there's not an economist in the world can say, hey, remember when this country was $31 trillion in debt and its, um, you know, it, its controller of monetary policy had $8.5 trillion on its balance sheet? No, I don't remember that. R- remind me again. Mm-hmm. What country was that and when? Oh, that's never in, and never has been. Now, but there's never been a country with this much debt. There's never been a country that had a, a central um, a central bank be this activist in distorting some of the realities of the market and the economy for that matter. It's not just distortion of the economy. Excuse me, the market is distortion of the economy. What is a pound of bacon really worth? I mean, I know I get there a lot. That's where I always end up, Rip. What is a Chevrolet pickup really worth? I mean, I understand inputs. I understand labor contracts. I understand EBITDA. I understand OI and ROI. I mean, I, th- those are business lingo, and I've been around that all my entire life. But but what is what is the right amount? Remember the other week we talked about the right amount of currency? What what needs mm-hmm. to be in the banks in reserve? What needs to be there? Um, we know we've got it wrong. Some will say, well, it's not that off kilter. The others will say, my God, it's so terrible. It's it's unbelievable. Larry Lepard's one of these guys because he's created this product that that basically says, you know, there's going to be a tremendous decline. Now, Larry's point is was well taken. So so the guy's betting against the dollar, but he wants you to pay him in dollars. But you know, I mean, I hate to say this, but you know a guy who's done this for 38 years and has an MBA from Harvard, I mean, he can't be a dummy. So he's got some rule of thumb, I guess, he applies to, um, yeah, I want you to pay me in dollars, but here's what, I mean, I think your $5 million is going to be worth $1 million in 10 years from now. I mean, I'm, I'm just making those numbers up. But but we act like, um, okay, we got we to gotta hold our breath for the next six or eight or 10 or 12 months and out on the other side comes this great American economy. I don't buy that. At what point in time does fiat run out? At what point in time does America say to itself, we can't do that any longer? 
We can't print money we don't have in perpetuity. We just can't. I mean, this is not an eternal blessing that we have. The right, you know, for the dollar to be the preferred currency on the on the global stage, it is today. But but once again, people talk about how strong the dollar is. The, I mean, I could use a, a lot of analogies, but they'd be offensive. I'm not going to do that. I mean, all my life I've said things that are colorful, but but a little bit insulting. And I'm not going to do that over the radio because I like this job, and I don't want the FCC taking me off the airways. I don't want to get fired by community broadcasters' ownership. But there are a lot of ways to explain why the dollar has outperformed its um its its peers, but why the dollar ain't you know much to brag on right now. And and I think this guy, once again, he's a perma bear. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He's made a lot of money shorting the market. Um, he probably you know short sales and drives the the price of. I mean, it, there, there's a lot of things in his past probably, but but he holds a a similar opinion to yours truly because he believes that fiat currency. And this is why I really got interested. And this guy, uh, about a week or so ago, when I read, fiat currency has ruined price discovery, and as a result, we're all going to have to suffer. I believe that with every fiber of my being. Now, now how much has fiat currency ruined price discovery? I don't know. I don't know. How much are we all going to have to suffer? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But to suggest that, as CNBC does and the Wall Street Journal does, because they've got a lot at stake. I mean, they've got a lot at risk. They've told us forever and ever and ever that the Fed had to do this. The central banks around the world were forced into these extreme and emergency measures. Were they? I mean, are, are we really better off today by what we began in 2008 and where we've ended up today? And I guess the point I'm making, as, as Lepard makes, we've never been here. We've never gotten ourselves, there's not a nation in human history that has never had this debt load. There's not a nation in human history that has ever had a central bank with this much, um, with this much, this many assets on its balance sheet and has pumped that much liquidity into the economy. So, you know, if you believe in the doom loop, and what the doom loop basically says, I mean, the way, you know, take your economist hat off for a second, put your G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu hat, what, what the doom loop would be is we're borrowing money to pay back borrowed money. I mean, I know businesses that have done that. I mean, there are a lot of businesses, what I call zombie companies, that have been able to sustain themselves because the cost of finance has been so cheap. Their widget isn't that good. Their labor force isn't that good. Their market share is not that good. But, they, but they've been able to finance and refinance at a LIBOR or, a, you know, Prime Plus One or whatever, some Fed, some, some lending rate based on what the federal fund rate was. And all of a sudden, the Fed fund rate goes up 250%. And, and the likelihood of them staying in business or not. And that's what Lepard is talking about. This fiat currency is so distorted, not just the market, but the economy. How many businesses can't pay their bills when they can't finance it at 2 or 2.5%, but rather 55 6, 6.5%, 7%? You know, I got the answer? I don't know. But I'm afraid we're going to find out, and it ain't going to be pretty. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. That actually, it's going to get worse because of input costs, and they know this. That's why they keep talking about, oh, the economy's great. The economy's great. Well, the economy right now, we've got 62% participation rate in the labor force. That's the lowest it's been in probably 40 years. But they keep saying, and like you were saying earlier, as soon as the Republicans take office, it'll be, 
oh, the economy's doing terrible. But the input costs, this year's feed, the the cost of feeding animals for meat and chickens and, and farming and everything else, those those are last year's feed stocks. Next year's feed stocks will be from this year's. And if you notice, core inflation keeps going up, even though the overall inflation is kind of leveling out. But they manipulate the hell out of those numbers. But it's gotten so bad with the uh, stock market that there's a company now that has a, a EFP, Exchange Traded Fund, that mirrors Congress. Whatever Congress and all those bureaucrats, there's like 26,000 of them that overperform as far as returns that beat Warren Buffett. It mirrors their, their buying <laughs> on, on the, the stock exchange. And you can buy into this. And, and it's amazing how these people are either they're ignorant or they're trying to think that we're ignorant. They're talking about the big pay raise of Social Security like you were talking last last week. That's a year out of sync. In other words, seniors have paid that price all the way for a year, and now they get 8.7. But they also raise the amount of of income that's taxed. 8.7%. So now the cutoff, instead of 147000 is 160000 So, But that's going to put a lot of people in the tax bracket to pay taxes on their Social Security because Congress waited so long to fix Social Security last time that they didn't index the improvements to inflation. So the $25,000 cutoff was made in 1983, and they didn't index it for inflation, so they figured only 10% of Social Security people would pay taxes on their money. Now it's going to be somewhere around 50 to 60%. And people don't understand that. They need to start studying and become informed. You know, I talk to a lot of people, and they don't understand anything about this. They can't even tell me what the three branches of government are. It's almost like I'm speaking in English and they're listening in dumbass. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. And I'm going to say this. I understand it, but I don't know the answers. I mean, I think some of our listeners do understand it to some degree, but I don't think anybody, I mean, if somebody called it today and say, hey, I know exactly what's going to happen with this doom loop and some of this, um, you know, what, what the dollar will be worth and what a price of bacon will be uh, cost based on the, I mean, it's all about the value of the dollar, right? I mean, all of our lives are, or whether we like it or not, I mean, the, 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 the financial happiness in our life is based upon what the dollar in our pocket is worth. I mean, the, you know, the price of bacon is based in dollars. Um, you know, milk and eggs. And I gave kind of a tutorial last week on um, kind of G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip about um, the guy selling the bacon and milk and eggs and sausage. I mean, he doesn't care whether you have enough mo- money to go to the movie or not. I mean, he wants to be as profitable as he possibly can. But but a lot of our debt is going to begin rolling. And by that, I mean some of the bond issuances will come due. And um, and we're at about $1.2 trillion. I mean, if you take the number, uh, the, the amount of debt we have today, and you base it upon what the expected interest rate will be on the next batch of bonds, because we're going to have to issue bonds, sell bonds uh, to pay the debt. And we're at about $1.2 trillion. 
I mean, the, 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 number with the, gov- the number the government's using right now is somewhere around $700 billion. But, but once we issue new bonds, I mean, when the debt rolls off and we issue new bonds to pay the debt load we've got, it's going to be about $1.2 trillion. So the government, I mean, you and I are the government. I mean, they're going to have to issue new bonds to finance that debt. Um, it's going to be real hard to sell bonds in a market where yields are spiking. I mean, that's just, uh, that's a reality. Um, so the government's going to have to pay a higher interest rate. I mean, if, if Rev's going to buy a U.S. bond, um, Rev's not going to take, uh, you know, one half of 1% or three quarters of 1% in today's finance climate. I mean, it'd be crazy to do that. Rev's want 4%. Well, I mean, the 4% leads to an increase in uh, what, what the, the, the yield of the bond. I mean, Rev expects a higher yield on that bond, and it becomes, that, that's the doom loop. I mean, that, you know, how do you get out of that? I don't have any idea. Once again, we've got a mess on our hands. How big is the mess? I don't know. How do we get out of the mess? I don't think we can. What are the consequences for not being able to get out of the mess? I don't know. I mean, I always end up there because I'm going to shoot you straight and be honest with you. I mean, I believe in the doom loop. And once again, I think I explained it. When some of this three-year debt rolls off, you hear three-year T-bills and five-year T-bills and 10-year T-bills, once some of this debt rolls off, once again, we're at about $1.2 trillion in interest owned annually. That's what we owe to the bondholder, to the person who buys that debt. The government owes them about, I mean, totally about $1.2 trillion annually. So once these bonds roll off and we begin to issue new bonds, I mean, you're selling bonds in a market that expects higher yields. That's the doom loop. What, what, what happens? Once again, three stupid words. You ready? But they're as honest as I can be. I don't know. Let's go to the phone. Greg in Sumter, listening to WDXY. Hello, Greg. Good morning. Uh, Ken, I, uh, you cover so much ground, I can't even keep track with you. <laughs> I lose my train of thought. But listen, a uh, couple things. Um, and, and you're talking about the value of the dollar. Uh, if we're realistic, the dollar has no value at all. It's uh, basically a promissory note. That's the way it came about. The Constitution defines money. Uh, gold and silver, although we've been off the silver standard since 70 when Nixon was in uh, office. But uh, the bottom line is uh, whatever value we give to the dollar is the value that it will have. And at some point, we're going to lose our confidence in the dollar, and it will revert to its value, which is nothing more than paper. And so if you read, uh, and I I don't have this in front of me, but if you read what the, the founders had to say about central banks, they were all about never letting them come into a being because of the situation that we're in right now. Whenever you can manipulate the economy and the money supply, you're in control of everything and you undermine that whole capitalistic system that we have enjoyed and has made us the nation that we are. And so for me, uh, I'm like you. I don't have a clue what's going to happen, but I do have sense enough to recognize that where we are going is not in a good direction, and we have no power to do anything about it. But I think I said this sometime before. We can, we can take a step uh, to, to preserve. I mean, you've had life insurance. I've, I've had life insurance to preserve what we have uh, value-wise, and that's buying gold or silver that's all i got to say thank you thank you appreciate that i mean if we want to really go down the rabbit hole i mean there's a debate about um in uh, behind door number one is the dollar behind door number two is crypto behind door number three is a real asset by that i mean farmland with water 
I mean, if you had a million dollars today, what is those dollars worth? I don't know. I mean, we're debating that have for the last 30 minutes or so. But if you've got a million dollars and somebody says you've got to invest in what's behind door number one, two, or three, and they show you behind door number one is the dollar, behind door number two is crypto, behind door number three is farmland with water. I mean, I had a buddy of mine. I mean, he's not a conspiracy theorist. He's quickly becoming one. Um, but he said, I can't grow a crop on crypto. You know, I can't feed my... There are a lot of strange beliefs that normal people are beginning to process with more regularity. And I think it's because we're, we're reading a lot about this fiat currency and we're reading a lot about the, the central banks. And Greg said a second ago, you know, the Constitution and the founders were well, really and truly when you look at um, the central bank in America today or around the world for that matter, we're talking about America because our founding and revolutionary war and our Constitution and Bill of Rights Declaration of Independence. But when you really think about the argument, Jeffersonian, Hamiltonian, we may do this tomorrow with Dr. Bolt. Uh, it, the central bank is what has kept that debate alive and well. I mean, Jefferson just had, had hatred in his heart for the notion or idea of a central bank. I mean, he just did not want any part of that. Hamilton was the guy that kind of convinced Washington and some of the other founders, no, this is in our best interest. And I would imagine, Rev, you know, borrowing and trading amongst international companies as a, a newbie of a nation would have had some incidental value. But Jefferson just knew. You can't trust a bureaucratic entity or enterprise to regulate itself. You just can't. And um, and I've learned more. And I'll tell you, my, my, in my travels or travails of trying to better understand the central bank, I went from knowing absolutely nothing to knowing a little bit to believing I knew a lot. And once I began believing I knew a lot, I started believing I knew nothing again. Does that make any sense? I mean, it's kind of a, um, it's almost a flow chart. I know nothing. <laughs> I know a little bit. I think I know a lot, but I'm beginning to wonder whether I know anything <laughs> or not. And I think that's the warning Jefferson clearly gave us. So when we talk about the debate of Hamiltonian, Jeffersonian government, I mean, a lot of those things have gone by the wayside. We've settled some of those battles. Jefferson lost that battle of Central Bank. I mean, he did. Hamilton won that battle. I think Jeffersonians have more influence on the American government today. But the notion of central bank, its authority, its power, its ability to influence, Jefferson lost that battle. Hamilton won. But look at where we are in regards to that Hamiltonian philosophy. Take a break. Back in a minute. So we've talked college football. We've talked Major League Baseball. We've talked, obviously, a lot about politics, the Fed, and the doom loop, and quantitative easing. And I mean, there's a guy at Goldman Sachs that says um, that he says, he catches himself saying that this reminds him of 2008 more times than I can remember. Oh. I mean, there's an article in one of the websites. It might have been the Wall Street Journal. Uh, probably not. might have been Zero Hedge. I mean, that's the, um, <laughs> you, you know, what? on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. They aren't the bearer of good news at Zero Hedge, <laughs> but it's uh, it's kind of a doom and gloom. Uh, I can imagine doom looper words uh, they uh, like. Of the American economy. We've not talked any NASCAR. And the story of NASCAR is Bubba um, Wallace and Kyle Larson had a um an incident on the racetrack followed by kind of pushing and shoving and threatening one another you expect that at a nascar race with a bunch of good old boys um you don't expect that from nancy pelosi and i don't know if you've seen this or not but pelosi um basically um said to one of her staffers or somebody on her team that she wanted to punch trump in the mouth and i think her exact quote I'm going to jail, and I'm going to be happy. No, uh, I've been waiting for this. For trespassing on the Capitol grounds, I'm going to punch him out. 
I'm going to go to jail, and I'm going to be happy. That is Nancy Pelosi. She ain't a NASCAR driver, but threatening violence <laughs> against the against the former president. Political strategist with over 20 years' experience in government and politics as a Washington insider began her career in 1991 in what is now called the White House Office of Public Engagement. Is with us this morning, Terry Hasdorf. Terry, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. Good to be with you. So does Nancy Pelosi have any legal issue with threatening a former president? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm not sure about that part, but most of the time you'd assume that an assault on the president would be universally condemned, but this is actually being applauded by the Democrats, which is quite shocking. Is Pelosi a net negative or a net positive for the Democrats as we head, what, 22 days away from the midterms? Well, her, you know, favorability ratings are are low. I think the latest surveys came out in September saying that she had a 43% very unfavorable opinion. Uh, So, you know, in light of this new comment, it'll be interesting to see how that number is affected. But Terry, as a political strategist, I'm a former office holder and candidate and somewhat of a pundit now. Um, When we're not talking about inflation, crime, or the economy, it's probably to the Democrats' advantage no matter if Pelosi said something as off the cuff as this or not, at least it does change the conversation. Is that our strategy? Is that good for the Democrats? Well, you know, it's something uh, that definitely is distracting off of the main issue. And the main issue is the Democrats have just spent almost $2 trillion with President Biden's economic rescue bill. And now we have massive inflation hitting people and people are trying to figure out how they're going to put food on the table and gas in the cars. Uh, so right now, that needs to be what our leaders are focused on fixing, not uh, not this other stuff. It seems like there's been a, a lot of personal vendettas going on between uh, President Trump and, and Pelosi, and that's uh, not what we need our, our leaders to focus on right now. Terry, when I hear that you worked in the White House office or what eventually became the White House Office of Public Engagement, my mind automatically drifts into kind of controlling the narrative, making sure these are the talking points without going too deep and, I guess, disclose what you're comfortable disclosing. What exactly is the White House Office of Public Engagement? Well, when I was there, it was called the White House Office of Public Liaison, and that was the office that uh, basically was liaisoning to uh, any group that wanted to come in and meet with the president. So my my personal involvement was with uh, faith leaders, veterans groups. Now, the office has evolved into something that is a little different uh, now, and it does seem like, you know, it's geared more towards shaping messaging and things along those lines. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure the involvement that the office would have over something like this. Terry, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Take care. Kind of an interesting take on the 2022 uh, midterms. I did see something over the weekend uh, when I was not watching the greatest college football game that was ever played, uh, and probably ever. No, I'm kidding. I don't know if it's the greatest game ever. It was a hell of a football game. It was a hell of a football game, no question about it. I mean, I thought about it as an SEC homer, and I'll have to do this over again. I thought about it as an SEC homer. You know, there's been a big debate in college football world about the SEC and their preferential treatment. You know, it just means more. Um, You know, they get the benefit of the doubt at every turn. And if you're a Big Ten fan or an ACC fan or even a a Pac-12 fan for that matter, you probably look at the ACC, I don't want to say with some envy, but but, but with some uh, negative connotations about, you know, their preferential treatment. Um, It just means more. You know, that's kind of their um, self-adopted claim. But I was thinking about, you know, as as an SEC homer, 
and I'll raise my hand. I'm an SEC homer, and uh, I think the Gamecocks are the best football league in America. But but we've had a debate for the last two or three or four years about are the two best teams in America in the SEC? Is Georgia and Alabama the two best college football teams in America? And I think you know the nation would be divided in some way about that. Um, if you you know if you if the SEC's prominence offends you, you'd say no. Of course there aren't. I mean Ohio State's been better. Clemson's been better. I mean, there even been a year that Utah or somebody like that would have been would have been better. Now the question is, are the three best teams in college football out of the SEC? Freehold, you would be a um, a neutral arbiter here. <laughs> so as a um, as someone who's excited about the Phillies backing into the um, National League Championship Series by um, finishing fourteen <laughs> that, games behind finishing fourteen games behind the Braves, but nonetheless, you know, going to the um, potentially going to the World Series nonetheless. Um, is Tennessee, Georgia, and Alabama the three best college football teams in America this morning as we speak? And you're asking me? Yeah, you don't know, do you? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I watched maybe 20 minutes of it because I was watching the Phillies game. See that, the ref, I, mean, I was we, watching Phillies. I mean, that's excusable. Okay, right? it is, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. I would imagine you watched the Eagles last night. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm so tired. Yeah. I hate everybody. They dismantled the Cowboys, didn't they? Yeah, well, I mean, I went to sleep at halftime. They were up like 20 or something like yeah. that. I woke up and they made it a good game, but who cares? But they won. Yeah, Eagles they beat, the, yes. beat the Cowboys. Yep. So Freehold's admitted that he's not the guy to ask yeah. whether or not. Um, he watches 20 <laughs> and minutes. And that kind of proves He point. said, I watched a few moments of the greatest football, uh, college football game that is um that has ever been played. Uh, big games this week. Um, Clemson hosting Syracuse, which appears to be a much improved team. And the Gamecocks coming off a big win against Kentucky. Open date will um, host Texas A&M. Um, this coming weekend in Death Valley. I'm excuse me again. Uh, Williams Bryce. If I'm not mistaken, the Clemson kick in Death Valley is a noon game, and the Gamecocks start at 7:30 in Williams Bryce. I think I'm right there. I did see a line this morning. Clemson is 13 and a half point favorite over um, over Syracuse, and the Gamecocks open as a four and a half point underdog against A&M, but are now a three and a half point underdog against Texas A&M. There's some quarterback questions at A&M, similar to what Kentucky had. Let me ask you this, Reb. I actually looked this up last night. If if South Carolina's a three-and-a-half-point underdog, I mean, you're kind of a um, a wonkish kind of guy. You numbers and I mean, equipment, and, you know, you talk about tra- tropospheric ducting and all that good stuff. <laughs> right, yes. So if, um, if the Gamecocks are a three-and-a-half-point underdog, what is the percentage that three-and-a-half-point underdogs win the game outright? Oh. Just give me a guess. Um... um I mean, there's actually a study there, done there, on all there, this. There, there is a of statistic, course there is. huh? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say 35. No, you're exactly right. Really? It's about 36%. Okay. Yeah, if a team is a three-and-a-half-point underdog, there's about a 36% chance they win the game outright. If they're a three-point underdog, there's about a 39% chance they win the game. If they're a four-and-a-half-point underdog, as they did in the opening line, there's only about a 31% chance that they win the game. It's kind of what I mean. People must not have anything to do. You know, some of these analytics and, uh, you know, statistical, uh, I don't know, uh, what about the, the aggregating of stats and analytics and all that um, good stuff. Speaking of analytics and st- stats, Real Clear Politics is doing something I find very interesting. And 2022 midterms are going to be the first time it's ever implemented its, um, its construct of deciding who knows how to poll and who does not. 
they, they've looked at some of the CBS polling, some of the Wall Street Journal polling, some of the Quinnipiac polling, and they're heavily weighted to landline. Um, 75% of all respondents were contacted on a landline. And, um, and you know, as part of their uh, science, they're calling it the Real Clear Politics Polling Accountability Initiative. Um, 20 years ago, there were no Facebook, no Twitter. 20 years ago, 90% of Americans had landlines. Today, it's less than 40%. And of the 40% who have landlines, there's kind of a belief, a soft belief, it's not provable, but about 20% of those, uh, excuse me, about one half of the 40% have it because of internet and Wi-Fi. So the, the real clear politics, excuse me, the polling accountability initiative takes all of this data into account. Um, 20, excuse me, um, 40% of Americans had cell phones in 20, um, 20 years ago, would have been, what, 2002, and today 97% do. So when you read a Quinnipiac poll that says, um, you know, 60% of the respondents were landline. You, you, I mean, that's a certain segment of society, and you're, you're overrepresenting and underrepresenting another segment of society. But they're going to come out with a yearly scorecard based on their, um, their analytic model of whether a company's doing a good job of polling or not. And, uh, and this, will, this will be the first time and the first year it's ever been, been implemented. And they've, they've already thrown Monmouth under the bus. Quinnipiac under the bus, uh, the Wall Street Journal, NBC News under the bus. They've already established that these polling methodologies are outdated. Uh, they're antiquated. They just don't work any longer. Um, as part of their um, gathering of information to build a, I guess, Rev, a supercomputer that will model, you know, how these um, how these polling companies did. They they they're saying, ah, they're, they're kind of predicting. They're predicting based on past trends what the historical trends have been, and they believe that the Republican candidate is going to overperform by 3.26 percentage points. So if a Republican is within 3.26 percentage points, it's a dead heat. I mean, if the Republican, let's take Walker in Georgia. I mean, the latest 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 poll had Walker one down. If you apply that, he would be 2.26 and, uh, you know, ahead. Now, now, once again, who knows how this, how this, we're all saying that a lot today. I don't know. And who knows how that works, but it's honest. I mean, we don't know how, how wrong the polling is going to be in 2022. 20, uh, Robert says, and I think you heard Kahaley last week on our show say, you know, they've not done anything to address the problems. They've kept the model as was instead of, you know, developing new models and algorithms, I guess, on how to, um, better represent your, your sample or your cross tabs. And, um, we shall see how that works out, but real clear politics is going to have a scorecard. Um, and they're, they're, they've already kind of thrown five thirty eight under the bus. Nate Silver's, you know, um, what Nate Silver's not a pollster. Nate Silver's a modeler. I mean, he takes the polling data from the cook political report insider advantage and NBC wall street journal. And he says, okay, these three polls say this, and he takes all of that, you know, he takes the, um, the milk and the flour and the sugar and puts it in a big mixing vat. And out of that comes some model on the other side that says the Republicans have, you know, a 70% chance to gain control of the House, but only a 30% chance to gain control of the Senate. I think that's a bad model. I think the Republicans have a 95% chance to gain control of the House and a 50% chance to gain control of the Senate. But the more this plays out, I'll tell you what the Republicans are doing, and I want to get to Mitch McConnell here in just a second. I put something on Facebook 
over the weekend that I'm still PO'd about. And I'll tell you why. Mm. But we got to pay some bills, oh. so I'll do it on the other side. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Remember last week when we touched on Mitch McConnell pulling the funding from the Arizona Senate race, Blake Masters, oh, yeah. trying to beat the astronaut, uh, Mark Kelly, and it's close. I think Masters is down about three or four points. But if you take the real clear politics, um, th- this polling initiative they're talking about, and you add the 2.36, I mean, it's very much within the margin of error. It's a toss up. And McConnell chose to not spend about $18, $17.5 million in Arizona that was previously allocated for that race. Peter Thiel, who's kind of the Republican kingmaker, really an America first kingmaker, um, made an overture to the Senate Leadership Fund um, and said, if you guys will put in $5 million, I'll put it. No, for every dollar um, I put in, will you match? And the Senate Leadership Fund, under the advisement of Mitch McConnell, said, no, we're not doing that. Uh, we're too busy trying to beat a fellow Republican in Alaska to try to beat a Democrat in Arizona. Shame <laughs> on Mitch be, McConnell. It should be noted that Blake Masters has said he won't vote for or support McConnell as leader. He's not of the, the old guard. I mean, he's a new. I mean, he's kind of a new version, a new when brand. When you try to assign McConnell's motives Party. here, but but Teal basically um, reached out and once again made an overture to the Senate Leadership Fund the first of last week and said, "Look, I'll do it, but I want you guys to match." And they politely declined. In other words, the, the Senate Leadership Fund is spending money in Alaska on behalf of Murkowski against Shabaka. Um, and we'll get to that in just a second. But uh, did I get the last name right? Uh, maybe not. Uh, anyway, we'll uh, we'll get to that in a second. In the, in the, well, I mean, it's... I think it's pronounced Chewbacca. Uh, Chewbacca. They're, they're, but it's, I don't think it's even that. I think there's another syllable in there. I think we're, we're doing... Oh. Both of us are, have it wrong here. Well, there um, isn't Chewbacca. But yeah, but it begins with different. a T. Uh, anyway, um, I'll get there in a second, but, but here's my point. So Teal makes the overture the beginning of last week, by the middle of the week, the Senate leadership fund says to Peter Teal, um, no, we're not going to do it. I mean, we're, we're, um, we're maxed out. I mean, we're spending all our money in races that we've identified and Teal did it anyway. I mean, Saturday, he decided to go ahead and put another 5 million. So that's roughly $20 million of Peter Teal money trying to get a Republican elected in Arizona that the Senate leadership fund is not going to help. I mean, how do, how do we feel as Republicans about a, um, a, a Trump-endorsed candidate being frowned upon by the uh, what I'll call the establishment of the Republican order um, and Peter Thiel basically spending 15 to $20 million of his own money? Um, what should happen to McConnell? Now, the Alaska, the, the Alaska Republican Party are asking the Kentucky Republican Party to censure Mitch McConnell. Is Mitch McConnell going to really be, I mean, if the Republicans win control of the Senate, is Mitch McConnell really going to be the Senate Majority Leader? We're going to have a Senate Majority Leader who worked actively to defeat another Republican in, uh, in Alaska, because there's two Republicans left, Shabaka. If we're getting that right, I think it's uh, it must be Shibaka. It starts with a T, it assuming does. it's silent. Then it's S H I B A K A. So it is. It is either Shibaka or Shibaka, right? Yeah, I mean I it's think not so. to Shibaka. I mean we're sure of that. I think the T but I've heard silent. it pronounced a couple of other different ways. But I, but I'm like Freehold. I've heard it with a kind of a C sounding to it, and then I've heard it with an S H sound to it. But we know it's not to Shibaka. Um, <laughs> we know it's not Chewbacca. Yeah, they're, they're like, in Star Wars. That's Star Wars, isn't yeah, it? Um, exactly. Or is that? Harry Potter. I'm, I'm, I'm illiterate when it comes to, okay, yeah. I, I didn't know that. I mean, you, you know much more about that than I do because you're the, you're the resident, um, you know, wonk. 
and and I'm not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right. but no, go, go back or, or you know so so Teal Teal agrees to spend <laughs> roughly fifteen. The Senate Leadership Fund has spent no money in Arizona. Peter Teal has spent twenty million dollars. Who would you rather have leading the Republican Party, Peter Teal or Mitch McConnell? I understand Teal doesn't hold office. I get that. Uh, but we've been, I mean, we've had opinion leaders. I mean, I, uh, George Soros. I mean, how much influence does Soros, does Soros have more influence on the Democrat agenda, the Democrat Party, liberal America than an office holder? Of course he does. Absolutely he does. I mean, we talked about the Soros endorsed judges or the Soros funded judges. Do we want Teal? to be as activist on the Republican side as Soros is on the, the liberal side. Talking about conservative and, and liberal. I mean, do we, do, 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 is it going to re, I mean, are we going to have to depend and rely upon people like Peter Thiel to do the work that Mitch McConnell will not do? McConnell has an obligation. It's not his damn money. I mean, this is donor money. I mean, this is money that has made its way to the Senate Leadership Fund in the name of getting a Republican majority in the U.S. Senate. And in a toss-up race in Arizona, McConnell has decided to walk away, not spend any of the Senate leadership fund because he knows Peter Thiel is all in and will probably put the other. I got to believe McConnell said, I'm not spending our money. He'll, he'll spend another $5 million to get his guy across the finish line. Is that what we want in a leadership position in the Republican Party? Uh, I say no. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. Of course, we started the show this morning talking uh, quite a bit about college football, and there is a debate whether that game on Saturday, the Bama Tennessee game, was the best college football game in history. We'll have to ask Freehole. Yeah, he watched ten or fifteen minutes of it, yeah. right? <laughs> Between um, Nola warming up or whoever the Phillies as they back into a playoff uh, series win. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's the best I've ever seen. It was really good. I mean, it was a really, really I mean, for Tennessee dramatic. Fans, it was. Yeah, I mean, the best college football games in my life have been the five times in a row we beat Clemson. I mean, those are the five greatest college football games as far as I'm concerned. I mean, they've returned the favor and then some, you know, with a uh, oh, yeah. six or seven game winning streak their own. But that but, scene um, at the end of the game when they, they rushed the field, they tore down the goalpost, the cigar smoke that was coming well, I mean, up over the stadium. There's so many storylines. You got one storyline, the dominant college football program in America today is Alabama. I mean, in the last 12 or 13 years, they've won six national championships. So they basically win a natty every other year. So there's no arguing that Alabama has been the dominant program of the past decade and a half. I mean, Clemson's won some, Georgia's won some, but nobody's won like Alabama has. And then you've got a, um, a storied program on the rebound in Tennessee. And you've got a, um, an East versus West SEC battle. It's in Neyland Stadium. It's sold out. 330 SEC game. I mean, there's so many um, dramatic storylines in this. And then the football lived up to the billing. I mean, it was that good a game. Alabama made a mistake. Tennessee makes a big play. Tennessee makes a mistake. Alabama makes a big play. I, I left that game, or my takeaway from that game, I still think Alabama's the better team, but Tennessee absolutely deserved to win uh, the game. It's a little bit like the Braves and Phillies. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from the Phillies. I think the Braves are a better team, top to bottom, than the Phillies. Not by much, but by a little. But the Phillies absolutely deserve to win the game uh, or to win the series because they outplayed uh, the Braves. Um, where you know, but but where does it land in the in the in the grand scheme of greatest game ever? I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. There was an Oklahoma Nebraska game 
that Johnny Rogers had against um he was a player for Nebraska against Oklahoma when the Tom Osborne Barry Switzer days that is often referred to as the greatest college game ever. Um people in the Big Ten will probably tell you, man, I've seen five Michigan Ohio State games better than that Tennessee, you know, Alabama game. We're in the South and the SEC is kind of the brand, you know, it's the big brand of college football. Um, down south so in the south if you were to ask um yeah that that game would receive high marks from nearly every college football fan i told you at, at about halfway through the third quarter i watched the game in its entirety but i had my computer in my lap and i'd send an email to cnbc story or you know some kind of doom loop or you know <laughs> the uh, the monetary debasement insurance or whatever but but i don't know I, re- I don't remember exactly what point of the game but it was a point of the game i put my computer down and i said this deserves my full attention oh. I mean, this game is that good. I mean, these teams are really going at it. And you kind of had a feeling that whoever had the ball last or whoever made the, you know, the big player, the bad mistake at the end, that was going to swing the game uh, one way or another. Um, but but once again, greatest game ever. I don't have any idea. It was a damn good college football game. Tennessee I mean, gets fined $100,000 for the, the fans storming the field. So, and I don't think they care. So, I mean, yeah. and, and, and shame on the University of Tennessee for starting a GoFundMe page. I mean, you know, you you run a multi-billion dollar university with with hundreds of million dollars in athletic revenue, find a hundred grand and pay the fine, uh, go buy some new goalposts. I saw that yesterday and that really disgusts me. See, I can find anything to be negative toward higher education. <laughs> the University of Tennessee figures out a way to start a GoFundMe page. Hey, help us pay for this um, fine and help us buy these new goalposts. Pay the fine yourself and put up some new goalposts. With that sixty million dollars you get in the SEC network um, every single the year. The goalpost, I think they eventually broke them, took them down the street to the bars, you know, showed them off at the yeah. bars, and then, and then threw them threw in the it, river. Yeah, threw, of course they did. Yeah. I think my son told me, he said, "Hey, they threw the goalpost in the river." I said, "Of course they did." I mean, that's <laughs> that's what you would expect college kids. I mean, you always end up throwing things in the river, uh, drunk <laughs> as, as a college kid. But, but but I think that the stop at the bars on the way to the river was funny. I want to go back to something, uh, and let's let's talk about baseball real quick because I want to do the complete sports recap. So, um, freehold, you didn't you didn't chime in. So the idea that I had, and what Rogers' point um, that the regular season has to mean more than it does today. Um, the Phillies finished 14 behind the Braves and Mets. Braves and Mets are at the house. Phillies continue. The Dodgers finished 22 games ahead of the Padres. The Padres beat them head-to-head in the series. I mean, they did. They they deserve to advance. But should we give more weight to the regular season? The team that wins 101 or 110 or 11 games, should they deserve um, a better hand than what they get simply by having home field advantage in the playoffs? Well, first of all, I agree that 162 games is insane. That's crazy. You know, uh, maybe 120 um, but 160, but you guys did have, you know, you got a free series. You, know I mean? you did, like you, you got didn't a have to play. But the Mets yeah. didn't. Yeah. But the Mets sure. didn't. I mean, the Mets had to play as many games as the Phillies. And I'm not, I'm not taking away from what the Phillies and Padres did. I mean, they, they, you know, they came to play. I mean, no question about it. Right. And they outplayed the Braves. I mean, I'm a Braves fan. You're a Braves fan. Mm-hmm. The Phillies flat out played the Braves. I mean, they just outplayed the Braves. The point I'm trying to make is, does the 162-game regular season matter or not? It does because the Dodgers can put up a pennant saying, you know, regular season champions. The Braves can put up a pennant saying National League East champions. But, but I, you know, I just think we've got to either let's shorten the season and let's let even more teams in the playoff and have something like March Madness or 
let's reward the Dodgers and the Braves and the Mets to some degree by um, starting the series with a one to nothing advantage. I mean, that, that creates a big yeah, advantage, and the Dodgers deserve that. I mean, I, I'm not a big Dodgers fan. I, I, I referred to myself earlier as a Dodger hating Braves fan. I just say that tongue in cheek and a bit, you know, sarcastically. But I mean, the Dodgers, I mean, the Dodgers beat the Padres by 22 games. And the Padres are advancing because they won one more game uh, than the Dodgers. I think they won three to one, didn't they? It's the same thing as the Braves. I mean, I think the Dodgers series was the, the same as the Braves series. Um, football is the sport that everybody cares about in America, but there's still some baseball purists out there. And I just think we've got to get back to a place of rewarding the regu- the grind of the regular season has to matter more than it does today. Let's go to the phone. Bobby in Hartsville. Hello, Bobby. Oh, I'm glad you came back around to the baseball team. <laughs> proof, you, you need to repeat. Uh, 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 Dave, you need to repeat yourself uh, in the uh, following hours. I didn't get on the, get in on the first comments about. But well, let me tell you something. I want you. I want you to know that I agree with your the way it used to be. Whoever wins the most games from each league, because the Dodgers would have it every year. They they just cannot perform in the postseason, and I am so kicked off. At the Dodgers for that. Look, the the uh, Manning, the uh, coach, went on Dan Patrick early in the year and guaranteed the Dodgers were going to win the World Series this year, which did nothing but light a fire under the the Padres. Padres tired of losing to the Dodgers for ten ten years and uh, getting swept swept last year, and so they just had it. They had it. the Dodgers, the players, for whatever reason. They play beautifully during the regular season. I love to go to YouTube and just watch the replays of them just beating up on everybody. But then when it comes to the postseason, nothing. It's like almost every year. Bobby, what's wrong with Clayton Kershaw? How can a pitcher be that good in his career during the regular season and that, I don't want to say bad, but, but he's nowhere near the pitcher in the playoffs as he has been during the regular season. What's up with that? Ken, is it is it nerves? I, I don't know, but you wouldn't think a baseball player would have that that you know a nerve problem when it gets into the the player. I don't know what it is. It's not just him. All the all the Dodgers players were just uh, really flat in this postseason game and these games. It's just ridiculous. Hey, I, I just wanted to call in Vince since you uh, <laughs> opened up the opportunity again. <laughs> Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, bad bad weekend for the Dodgers and, and, fans, and, and we do kind of feel your pain. I sure, mean, we're in the same as a Braves here. fan, yeah, you feel like you um kind of worked hard to get yourself in an advantageous position and didn't take advantage of it. I, but but I want to say this now, as a Braves fan who watched a lot of the games this year, the Phillies were always a handful. I mean, they, they were always. I mean, they run starters to the heel every day that can can pitch lights out. And um, and you've got Harper in the middle of that lineup. I don't want to turn it into a sports show, but I mean, the Phillies were always a dangerous team. The Padres once they got Soto, and you got Soto and Machado. But I mean, that they became legitimate. I mean, you know, and and you know, and as a baseball fan, you know, in a short series, what do we always say? Man, anything can happen in a short series. <laughs> got to be careful in one of these short series. Is um, man, I wish we didn't have to play the the Phillies and Padres in a in a short series. But um, but Clayton Kershaw is kind of an interesting enigma. You know, the guy is a Hall of Fame pitcher and almost unhittable at certain points in his career until he gets to the postseason, and then he looks very average. I don't say the wheels come off and he looks like a, a guy that doesn't belong in the major leagues, but he looks very average, and he looks anything but average. Uh, during the um during the regular season eight four three six six one oh nine three seven let's go back real quick if you don't mind we've not had anybody respond 
to this, and I know it's kind of hard to get your arms around, and I'm not asking anybody to, to you know, tell me what the doom loop is or the um, the, uh, the the monetary debasement insurance. We'll, we'll kind of back away from that for a second. That's more um, of me, I don't know, discussing with you things I've read about these interesting issues in the economy that do directly affect uh, politics, particularly because we have midterm elections in 22 days. But but how do we feel about Mitch McConnell? I mean, the majority of people listening to my voice right now would identify as Republican voters. How do we feel right now about the highest-ranking Republican in America being Mitch McConnell? Because what Mitch McConnell has done is decided to bail on masters in Arizona and, and work against a fellow Republican in Alaska. Let me find this story that I read uh, over the weekend. Uh, here we go. So the Alaskan Republican Party, they have something called the District 9 Central Committee. They passed a resolution the end of last week to condemn the Senate Minority Leader's spending on behalf of Lisa Murkowski. She's the incumbent senator from Alaska. Remember, they have ranked voting in Alaska. So we've ended up with two Republicans. We have Senator Lisa Murkowski, and then we have this Trump-backed challenger, um, Kelly Tishibaka. Um <laughs> Who is um who has also been endorsed by the Alaskan Republican Party, the Senate Leadership Fund. I mean that's the money that I mean it's the super PAC, PAC being political action committee that Mitch McConnell controls. Um, not his and, money; it's and, donated. Well, money. I mean it's donated, and the the intent of the money. I mean it's pretty single focused. Reclaim the majority. Senate leadership funds are to be basically spent to reclaim the majority. So we know there's going to be a Republican in Alaska. Period. I mean, it's either going to be Tishabaka or it's going to be Murkowski uh, from Alaska. We know that. Why spend any money in Alaska fighting uh, or preferring one Republican over the other? But um, McConnell has chosen to take $7 million from the Senate Leadership Fund. Remember, he um, took $8 million away. He'd already taken $10 million away from Blake Masters, took another $8 million away. And he's spending seven of the eight million in Alaska. Um, we got pickup opportunities in Nevada. We got pickup opportunities in um, in Arizona and uh, in Ohio in Pennsylvania. He's spending in Ohio and Pennsylvania, but not so much in um, Nevada and uh, in, uh, in Arizona. Um, and here's what the um, the District Nine Republicans released a uh, an official statement from Alaska, where they say request the Senate Leadership Fund immediately stop the attack ads against Kelly, uh, excuse me, Kelly Tishibaka and discontinue all support of Senator Murkowski. Um, their resolution went on to demand, as much as they can, um, Kentucky GOP leadership censure um, their senator, he's a senator from Kentucky, from meddling in Alaska party affairs while the minority leader abandons efforts at capturing the majority. Um so as a Republican Party, where two-thirds of its voters identify as America first, two-thirds of Republican voters want, in essence, out with the old, in with the new. We, we like this nationalist conservatism. We like this, um, this anti-intervention, anti-globalist, anti-China, pro-American worker uh, political agenda. McConnell's not on board with that. He's simply not on board. How can he remain in a leadership position? How are we going to let McConnell remain the person who decides not single-handedly, but he sits at the end of the table when they have these meetings. How is he going to be the guy that decides where to spend uh, enormous resources the Republican Party has on behalf of candidate X, Y, or Z? So, so in a nutshell, 
He's spending for a Republican, against a Republican, not spending for a Republican, running against a, a Democrat. I mean, his job is to ensure the best chance to have a majority. He's not doing that. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Jim and Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, Ken, what's the point of these political debates anymore? I, you know, I, if I was running for office, I'd almost question whether or not I would do one um, because the, the politics seems so polarized that I don't know if they serve any useful purpose. You know, no longer are the days of Nixon versus JFK where we're, you know, debating these little policy tweaks um, that really have no, that are no real big difference. You know, and, and, and gone are the days where there's no real big difference of the between the parties. I mean, there's a huge difference, and and I have to ask, you know, when you watch the the debate between Herschel. Uh, and the so-called preacher, I mean, everybody, they're world apart. I mean, one, one wants you to be able to kill a baby after he's born, and the other's, you know, on the other end of the spectrum. I just don't understand the point, because we already know what these people think before they go into the debate, and I, it just feels like it's just more for gotcha moments than anything else. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. I mean, I think debates have become a formality. We, we do it because we've always done it. It's just the way things are. Sometimes it bees like that. It's always been like that. Um, Rev and I had a discussion a couple of weeks ago and last week about an issue we got involved in um, trying to host a debate. And um, I mean, I think I think debates are important in primaries. I mean, I think you know Republican primary voters getting to choose. Um, it's kind of a selection process, so you get to kick the tires of this Republican candidate and that Republican candidate. What nuance um, disagreement do they have about China or trade or immigration or some of the others? But once they become the nominee, I mean, there's kind of a um, there's a national agenda, and and Jim's right, they're light years apart. We're not debating uh, whether to build a wall or not. We're debating whether to secure the border. I mean, are we going to be a nation with open borders, or are we going to be serious about securing the border? And I think the Democrats have made it clear where they stand. The Republicans have tried to make it um, clear where they stand. So I do believe that debates are helpful in the selecting process of primary politics. I don't think they add much to the electing process. How many independents are really watching a Warnock-Walker debate in Georgia deciding, hey, Herschel really nailed that one. Warnock didn't do so well. Um, I mean, if you're an underdog, if you're Joe Cunningham, you want to debate every week. I mean, you know you're 10 down. You know you're in a right, uh, you know, a, um, a red state. And the only way you have a chance is to try to get McMaster to say something uh, he regrets or make a, a big mistake with independent minded voters um so if i may um and maybe this is the problem we've gerrymandered uh some of the um some of the you know the districts where they're you know if you're republican in a safe republican leaning district you'd be a crazy to to debate the democrat and to jim's point what are we going to gain from watching i mean do we really believe we're going to have a nuanced debate about abortion between walker and warnock are we going to have a nuanced debate about you know taxes between kelly and, and blake masters I mean, we know where the two parties stand. And if you win the nomination of the Republican Party, I mean, you've gained the support of that universal group of people. And you kind of know, I mean, they're not monolithic, but but by and large, they stand here or there or somewhere, you know, over the, you see where I'm headed? So I don't know that there's any advantage to general election debates. I mean, I wish there were. I mean, I, th- I wish we had conversations about politics and 
and disagreements in philosophy and you know policy and so but we don't i mean we don't it's it's um it's as jim said it's got you moments it's scoring the point here scoring uh, the point there uh it's kind of interesting the two best debaters that i've seen this election cycle have been blake masters and jd vance i mean clearly i mean they, they've been better i think herschel came across as authentic and real and a man not, not trying to be real complicated i mean he looked like a former football player you know kind of a big burly guy um but but came across as a humble, simple, believable, authentic man. Um, had enough understanding of the issue. You know, he didn't quote the Heritage Foundation. He didn't quote the, the Cato Institute. He didn't quote the American Enterprise Institute or the Brookings. And I mean, that, you know, some of these guys like to get up there, and ladies as well, on either side and try to prove, you know, how much they know about this issue or that. I don't care how much you know. Where do you stand? I mean, what do you think about abortion? What do you think about taxes? What do you believe in immigration? I don't want to. I don't want to hear what the report from the American Enterprise Institute says. I can read that myself. What does Warnock believe about abortion? What does Walker believe about abortion? But we're not. We're not disputing. We're not splitting hairs. I mean, we're there. There aren't these these nuanced differences that historically has been um, the case. If you win a Republican nominating process. We kind of sort of know where you stand on the big issues. If you win a Democrat nominating um, contest, we kind of know where you stand on the issues. Um, but but once again, I think the debates and the selecting process of primary politics is very helpful. Not so much in the generals. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Linda in Sumter, listening to WDXY. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. McCaskill has never voted to help Alaska at all. If you look back, she is a career politician, just like McConley in Kentucky. And McConley's got to hang on to his career politicians because they're actually Democratic voters or rhinos. That's what the whole thing is about. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Appreciate that. You know, there's kind of a descriptive word, rhino, Republican in name only. Um, I was reading something over the weekend. Let me get this about national conservatism. This is kind of an interesting story. Um, there was a book written years and years and years ago. But if I'm not mistaken, the guy's name was Crowley, C-R-O-L-Y. But it was called The Promise of American Life. And it was about FDR's New Deal and, uh, you know, uh, liberalism or new what we call New Deal liberalism. And, you know, when, when you talk about Rhino, Republican in name only, you know, he's not a real conservative. Um they just had a convention in Florida, the National Conservative, the National Conservatism Convention. It's a lot of Trump talk. I mean, it's um, Peter Thiel has spoken. Josh Hawley has spoken. J.D. Vance. Uh, Ron DeSantis gave the keynote. I think we played a good bit of, of um, DeSantis' speech. I thought it was a, an articulation of what I'll refer to as national conservatism about as well as anybody I'd heard. Um, some of the intellectual underpinning or policy underpinning of what I think needs to happen if this movement is to sustain itself and take a, you know, a kind of another step in a, in a serious governing philo- philosophical um, sort of way. But, um, but it, it's not really a turn away. There's an argument by George Will and some of the National Review crowd that national conservatism isn't real conservatism. It, it's not small government. It's not, you know, anti-regulation. It's, um, in fact, it, it really, I mean, it kind of identifies in some way, shape, or form with some of the um, the New Deal liberalism ideas, the concepts that came on. Um, my point has always been 
that conservatism mutates. I mean, the, the, the different mutations of conservatism end up in a lot of different sorts of places. Um, I mean, Reagan conservatism isn't the only conservatism in the history of mankind. And if you really think about um, conservatism, it evolves. It probably always will. Um, I went back and read in some of the promise of American life. And once again, don't quote me on that. I mean, I know the name of the book, but I, Crawley, C-R-O-L-Y. I mean, it's kind of an interesting read. I mean, it really and truly is. Um, and it speaks a lot to the, um, the conservative resistance to New Deal liberalism and whether or not that was in the country's best interest. I mean, it's intellectual by nature. Um, that's why I gravitate toward those things. You know that. Um, but, but it really (laughs) argues that, that conservatism as we know it today, uh, began in the 1940s, kind of a, um, not a single purpose, but largely to oppose some of the new deal policies. Um, but then, I mean, we've had a lot of mutations of conservatism. It's, it's different now than it was then. Um, but it always has been, I mean, it's always been, um, a moving target. And the point that I'm trying to make is um, this is kind of interesting because some of the national conservatives will argue. I mean, we've heard these tech oligarchs from the right, not from the left, from the right. I mean, you you would you know back in the FDR days. I mean, he denounced corporate leaders as economic royalist. I mean, he, FDR used that word or those two words over and over and over again. And then the um in the book, The Promise of American Life. They really talk about FDRs. Um, I mean, it's class warfare. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's class warfare, but it talks about some of these corporate leaders. Well, I mean, if you look at the present day, um, what are national conservatives calling for? I mean, this is this is kind of politics makes strange bedfellows. But if you think about it, I mean, the um, the nationalist conservative movement is largely about you know this um this enabling force between government and, you know, big business. So they're calling for the government that they don't trust to control, um, to regulate, to break up some of the corporate power, you know, some of the monopolies. Um, And and really, I I guess what I'm trying to argue, I'm doing a lousy job of this, but the point I'm trying to make is the conservatism that led to a Reagan revolution began by opposing New Deal liberalism introduced by FDR. And it's almost like the national conservative has come full circle to, in some weird way, join forces with FDR. Economic royalists are all of a sudden tech oligarchs. You know, the deregulation that conservatives wanted in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s all of a sudden say, I'm not opposed to regulation if you're regulating the right people. You know, I'm not opposed to um, to breaking up some of the companies if you're breaking up the right companies. You know, Twitter and Facebook and, you know, um, some of the huge social media giants. Um, you see where I'm headed? I mean, I just think it's a conservatism is not in a box this big. I mean, you can't see my hands, but about the size of a, um, you know, a, a basketball. I mean, conservatism is is big. I mean, it mutates, it evolves, it does a lot of different things in a lot of different places. And I think if you're interested in, in if that's a reality or not, I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it seems to me that the conservatism that opposed New Deal liberalism and FDR's policies are not in lockstep, but they're kind of compatible today to some of the ideas 
of the New Deal because, once again, I just read two words, you know, tech oligarch, economic royalist. What's the difference? One was said in the 40s. The other said in 2022 <laughs> at a national conservative um, convention. Let's go to the phone. Here's Charles in the mark. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, gentlemen. I've been kind of working on some things this morning and haven't had a chance to call, but I wanted to respond to the question you asked earlier about what Clemson fans think about Danny Ford versus Dabo. And I got a question for you, Ken. You said that the best five football games you ever remember is the five years in a row that South Carolina beat Clemson. Um, Steve Spurrier was the coach then. So is Steve Spurrier a better coach, or was Paul Dietzel a better coach? He's the only one that ever won a conference championship coach in the Gamecocks. But see, Charles, your, your I mean, your experience as a fan is so much different than mine. I mean, we've we've um we've we've kind of piddled around. I mean, you know that. I mean, we've we've been yeah. mediocre at best, and we had that one run where we were good and we beat the rival. See, I've often wondered what would Spurrier's legacy be if they were the best they've ever been, but he went two and three against Clemson. So in the five years Spurrier had, not only were we the best we'd ever been, we beat our rival who has historically owned us in this head-to-head. So, I mean, my, my vote is hands down Steve Spurrier. I just think as a Clemson fan, you've got a guy who reached the pinnacle and won a national championship in, in Danny Ford, and then you've got a guy who reached the pinnacle twice and won two national championships. So as a Clemson fan, your your I guess your, your barometer of success is much higher than mine as a Gamecock fan. Does that make sense? There, it, Well, not, yes, number one. And, and of course, we've won eight in a row if you count the forfeit in 2020. I think we'd have won that one, uh, Charles. <laughs> be nine in a row. Yeah, of course you do. Uh, it'll be nine in a row this year, or eight if you forget the uh, forfeit. There's no comparison between Danny Ford and Dabo Swinney. Danny Ford won some games. But he did some things that were not in the best interest of Clemson University and Clemson football. He won a national championship, and I am proud to associate with him and got a picture of uh, of Perry Tuttle from the cover of Sports Illustrated signed by Danny Ford on the wall in my office. But uh, Dabo is hands down a better coach, or at least to allude to something that you said earlier, a better leader than uh, Danny Ford ever was. And that that's just one man's opinion. But um, but that's what I think about. I think Dabo, is, uh, he's been, a, been our coach for 14 years, if you count the, uh, the interim year, and began his 15th year last week, uh, actually his 14th season this year. But um, he, he is hands down a better leader and molder of men than Danny Ford. And I think and you would agree D- Dabo has been a visionary. I mean, he's, he has had a vision of where the program needs to get and where the time suggests it needs to be, and he's adapted to that. Is that fair? Absolutely, no doubt. You're 100% correct there. And the good part about it is he's like early 50s. So we've probably got maybe 20 more years with this guy as a, as the head football coach. Um, Thank- it's it's an exciting time for Clemson football. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. Appreciate you calling in and um, elaborating. And congratulations on, how- on your win Saturday night. Yeah, I mean, that's a big win against some Florida State. Not the same old Florida State team. Still a big win on the road. And they've got Syracuse coming to town. I'll say this now, and then I'll probably get in trouble with some of my Gamecock um, insiders, but when, 
when the debate was about who to follow Muschamp, I mean, it was obvious Muschamp was a mistake. Um, good guy, just didn't work. I mean, it didn't work at Florida, didn't work at, um, you know, there, there's kind of a, um, a story in college football today is Brent Venables, Will Muschamp 2.0. I don't know. I mean, they, they won Saturday, played much better. And Venables has a lot of things at Oklahoma. Well, I mean, that's unfair because uh, Muschamp had a lot of things in Florida, you know, that suggested he would win big. I mean, there, there's a big recruiting base. Uh, you know, a big name, big brand, big conference. So Oklahoma and Florida will be similar in that way. But it looked like Venables was having trouble adjusting from a defensive coordinator, an elite defensive coordinator, into being a head coach. But when the Gamecocks began the journey of replacing Will Muschamp, when they be when they I mean came to grips with this isn't working, got to go find another guy, another coach, another um, leader for the program. Um, I mean, I, I, I I'm not in the inner circle, but I talked to a lot of those guys who are in the inner circle. And I said, guys, I would go find another Dabo. I mean, imitation is the best form of flattery. I mean, it's work there. Why not go find a salesman? Why not go find an excitable guy who has a vision? Maybe he doesn't know a lot about defensive football. Maybe he's not a great offensive mind. Nobody doubts whether Venables knows defense. Nobody doubts whether Steve Spurrier knew offense. I mean, their record speaks for itself on that. But I think the, the the job of a college football coach has become one of a kind of a visionary and a salesperson and a creator of a brand. And um, I mean, I'm not saying that's why they went and got Shane Beamer. But if you look at Beamer's resume, I mean, he's never established himself as a as a guy who knows all there is to know about defensive football or all there is to know about offensive football. But but I think he's very similar to Dabo. He's a, a very excited person. He's a very enthusiastic person. I mean, I think he's very comfortable walking in the home of a recruit and, you know, kind of breaking bread and shooting the bull and, and convincing that family that he's going to always have their, their player's best interest. So, I mean, I, you know, do, do, I, do, do I believe as a Gamecock fan there's a reason to try to imitate what Clemson did with Dabo? Yes, of course. I don't care if they were orange or not. I mean, it works. And if it works, why not try to figure out why it works? And once you figure out why it works, why not try to figure out a guy that could potentially duplicate something similar to that? Correct me if my memory is right or wrong here. And, of course, Clemson's recent success speaks for itself. But there was a time, and I believe it was during those five years when the Gamecocks beat their rival in the upstate, uh, that there was a big call, and I remember the words, Dabo must go. Well, I mean, they hadn't lost to South Carolina. And all of a sudden, you're losing to South Carolina, and you don't know what to do. Amongst I mean, it's Clemson almost like fans. I didn't know what to do beating Clemson as, as much as we were. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, I was like, there's that this too. can't be real. Somebody's going to slap me in the face a minute, pour cold water, and tell me, <laughs> wake up from that five-year dream you've been in. But no, I, I think there's similarities, and I think Charles would agree to this. There, there are some similarities between Beamer and Dabo. I just hope the story ends for the Gamecocks <laughs> as it seems to have ended or are still going on uh, in Tiger Town. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Sam in Darlington. Good morning, Sam. Uh, morning, morning, guys. Uh, so Ken was talking uh, earlier about uh, maybe the conservatives are are getting off of the of the theme of being mad with Roosevelt for everything he did. <laughs> and uh, back in my earlier days of reading, uh, I, my dad had a lot of books on his shelf written by conservatives criticizing Roosevelt. And, and those um, and they were, these conservatives were mad as hell and weren't going to take it anymore. And, uh, and I, I am imbibed of that for a long time, but uh, lately I've, I've realized that, um, you know, that 
just because you're mad and you have what seems to be a righteous indignation at Roosevelt, that doesn't mean uh, that doesn't mean that you've got the truth. And and I, you mentioned big corporations. I think this um, it would be good if the conservatives uh, came to the conclusion, which I guess is my conclusion. That's why I think it's good. But uh, they that corporations are not people. Uh, they don't have really the constitutional protections that a person has and that the constitution is a what i've read a legal fiction devised to protect entrepreneurs from some liability in order to encourage business development and it started in england with the limited it was limited liability corporations uh, our companies over there um and it's just not it's just not so and uh and corporations need to be regulated, and uh, and when they, you know, when regulations are proposed, and uh, corporations come out with all this libertarian talk about oh, free enterprise, free enterprise, and constitutional rights, etc. No, no, I mean they need to be regulated. That, so I'm saying you, I agree with what you said earlier. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. You know, when when I think of the Republican Party, I mean, I'm thinking about things I like about it, things I don't like about it. Two things come to mind when I think about the the Reagan Revolution and and, and kind of the Bush years that followed that. And that is, I mean, I guess it's belief, it's support of greater military intervention in foreign lands. I mean, there was a day as a conservative I bought into that because that's what my party believed in. That's what the movement was a part of. And then it was to, um, I mean, it, it believed it had a calling to preserve Christian values, some of the social issues, abortion, gay marriage, uh, some, some of the other morality, ethical issues of our time, Judeo-Christian values were kind of a centerpiece of the Republican orthodoxy, uh, and that, that became, you know, kind of entrenched in conservative values, conservative, vote for the conservative candidate because he'll, you know, he'll fight for Christian values. Um, that's kind of an interesting debate. And, and once again, I'm not arguing that, you know, every conservative today is a New Deal liberal but there are some similarities in conversation. Back in a minute. Last hour this Monday morning. It takes Mondays to make Fridays. Um, I want to get back to this conversation. Sam kind of got my, I mean, I, you know, it didn't take me much to get confused, but I'm not confused about it. But it, and, and I'm not arguing that all of a sudden the, um, the new national conservative movement has morphed in to something that, you know, is just like the New Deal uh, liberal movement. I'm not arguing that. The point I'm trying to make is um, there are some of us, and I guess to some degree I've been included in this at times, that believe um, conservatism, true conservatism, has to fit in a box. And if you're not a William Buckley, George Will disciple, then you're probably not a true conservative. If you're not Red Atlas Shrugged, you're probably not a true conservative. And I think there are many um, anti-Trump conservatives that believe that. Uh, they don't like the direction this movement is taking uh, the political party. I'll give an example. Um, when you look at polling, uh, what I'd call the conservative voter, the traditional Reaganite conservative voter, I mean, they, they, they still support so, some of the greater military involvement um, and intervening overseas in foreign lands. I don't. I've never been crazy about that, Rev, but I felt I couldn't balk but so much because I'd get kicked off the team. <laughs> I want to be on the team, man. I want to be a conservative. I want to be for Reagan. Um, you know, I want to understand what made this Reagan revolution so special. And then the Bush era. The Bush years were a very interventionist period in American history. I mean, we felt like, I mean, it was American imperialism. 
I mean, forget the intervention. I mean, it was it was it was the exportation. Uh, I say exploitation, the exportation of American imperialism. We believed we were imperial, and everybody else needed to kind of follow suit. I mean, if we if we saw a place in the world that needed to be impacted by American imperialism, then we just did it by Fort Mice or Ford and Might. Um, so I've never been a big fan of that. But but even but but I was afraid to kind of jump ship because I wanted to be a part of the team. Now I'm talking about post 2004. Remember that I didn't even. Uh, you know, I'm talking about Iraq and Afghanistan and some of the. I didn't question that as much as I wanted to because I'm a Republican office holder and this seems to be kind of where the party um, stands. Here's the interesting part of this. I mean, I grew up in a Baptist church. I'm a born again Christian. I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I believe in its um, saving grace. I believe in the salvation um, that that it, it offers to every human being willing to listen and um, and accept. But I don't know that I want my party working to preserve. Christian social values. I just don't. Uh, when I look at political parties um, and their priorities, it seems to me that some of these social issues that have become so divisive, you know, in America and within the party itself, um, that's where I really scratch my head. And I'm going like, okay, I'm a Christian, but I don't think I have the right to force everybody else to be a Christian. I believe in Judeo-Christian values and principles, but I don't know that I have the authority via the government that I voted for to kind of enforce that view or value on the world. Uh, to, to me, religion, faith is a matter of the heart, not the, uh, the policy maker. And, and I know the Supreme Court and I know the Catholic, you know, the faith and abortion. I mean, I understand that the religion has been central to American politics since its beginning, its inception, um, the, the separation of state and, and church. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm well aware of all that debate that we've had and we'll probably um, have again. But um, as a, as a Trump, Republican, as an America first Republican, um, I'm bothered that the anti-Trump conservative still believes that conservatism cannot mutate and there aren't different uh, evolutions of Republican policy and Republican priorities. And, um, and once again, I'm glad that this movement does not support greater military intervention. I mean, I am, I mean, I can't tell you how happy I am that, you know, the teal wing of the party the Trump wing of the party, the um, the Rand Paul wing of the party seems to have won this battle about whether or not we have an obligation to export. You know, when I'm talking about McCain and Lindsey Graham, I'm, those are the two that I'm really talking about. I mean, they, they believe, and I think they fundamentally believe this, that, that America has to be influential in places around the world because we get it right when the rest of the world gets it wrong. I mean, that's kind of an imperialistic worldview as far as I'm concerned. And I know we're getting the weeds and a bit scholarly here, for a second, um, but but is America first anti-interventionist? I, I think it is. I think I America, yeah. But I think the um, I think the anti-Trump Republican has seen um, a lot of its influence wane, and I'm talking about the military-industrial complex. And this is where I think people. I don't want to pick on Sam for a second. I think this is where Sam gets a little bit complicated or conflicted. That'd be a better word. I think Sam goes okay because um, Sam has made it known. And I think we're in agreement here. Um, I think American imperialism is dangerous. I think the world is more at risk when we execute American imperialistic policies. Um, but I don't think Sam wants any part of the Trump agenda. But one of the centerpieces of the Trump agenda or the America First agenda. See, I hope we can sooner than later get away from calling it the anti-Trump conservative movement. I mean, it's the anti-America First conservative movement. But it's far more popular to say I'm an anti-Trump conservative. 
Well, how do you fix your mouth to say, I'm an anti-America first conservative? Explain that, please. I mean, you're an American citizen. You're an American voter. You're an American taxpayer. How can you be an anti-America first yeah. You want America second? Yeah, last, yes. well, what are you, know, you an 31st? America, America fourth? You know, America 17th? I mean, do you want to be the Phillies and back into a to a World Series? I mean, you see <laughs> a little backhanded yeah, jab there, and a good friend, uh, free old. But you see what I'm saying? Um, and I think the, the Republican Party is, once again, the mutation. I think that's the proper word. And um, and today, the party seems to um, be willing to forsake some of the foreign involvement um, because they just don't believe it's our role of responsibility. It seems to me that the party is um, less interested, less inclined to be Christian or Judeo-Christian activists. It doesn't mean the majority of people in the party don't believe in that. It's just the majority of the people say, hey, man, we got a lot of other things we need to work on. And I think anti-intervention, uh, kind of an anti-globalist, it, it's really a pro-worker party. So if you're going to create a movement within a political party that identifies a, um, a group left behind, and that being the American working class, and you prioritize that in a policy, or really, you know, how do you get elected? You got to get people to vote for you. So the American working class don't feel like either party has done justice by them so you start reaching out to that American working class. And I think those are people of faith and people not of faith. I, I just think for a long time, the two biggest issues that I felt conservatives were involved in was the preservation of Christian values, the, the, um, the, the, the advancement of a Judeo-Christian agenda, while at the same time um, supporting greater military involvement and intervention in lands that may or may not have um, American interests at heart. That's why I think this national conservative movement is sustainable because it's fairly simple. I mean, we're going to do right by the American worker. I mean, these policy differences and disagreements we have, um, where do we end up? I hope we end up in a place that, you know, advantages the American worker, advantages the American family, um, and doesn't prioritize some of these intervention policies nor some of the, um, and once again, I, I'm a Christian and I think we're better off following the Christian values and Christian morals and, and Christian ethics. I just don't know that I want my political party making that as one of its priorities. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, I'm going to be kind to these Phillies, man. Um, y'all remember this name, Warren Zevon. You remember that name? I do. Sure. Yes, sir. He had a song. It's called Werewolves, Werewolves of London. Of London. Well, uh, this Phillies, man, they're the werewolves of New London. Uh, there's a town outside of Philly called that, man. These are young, hairy, scrappy guys, man. And here's and, and the Braves are too. But here's the difference between them and the Braves. These guys are hungry. And going back to the the reference to werewolves of London, that Bryce Harper, man, his hair is perfect. I mean, that guy pulls off that helmet. His hair is perfect. And... Kyle Schwarber, did he really get hit by that pitch the other day? Did y'all watch that game? I was watching football, man. I mean, when football started over the weekend, I kind of—I mean, I'm a big Braves fan, but in, in my in my um in my prioritizing of of my sports and entertainment is still football for me in October. Well, well I, I'm like you, Ken. I watched a replay of that, that Phillies game, and I swear that was the greatest acting job. Hayden Band got on base, and they won. So I'm gonna give them credit. They they beat uh, St. Louis. I mean, St. Louis is a veteran team. They beat them. 
So I, let's get let's let's pull for Mike. Let's pull for the Phillies going on now. Uh, quick comment: January sixth, um, Pelosi was being filmed by her daughter. That's kind of weird. But uh, we're at this rely on OPEC for our energy policy. Can you you remember when you were a little kid? There was what they called the Yom Kippur War back in 1973. That's when I first heard of this concept of OPEC. And that's that's when you had Israel versus some of the Arab countries. And I'm thinking to myself, somebody along the way said, we're not going to have this happen again. Now we're back to, back to the future. And remember them, uh, I guess, when Gerald Ford whipped inflation now. I mean, we're back into those stages. So thinking to myself, Biden, he's been here. That was his first year into Senate was 1973. It just don't make any sense to me when we are trying to have this all-service economy that relies on the globe for energy and manufactured goods, and we're trying to use our military to try to keep these people in line. They don't want to be underneath us. Well, we got to do all of this stuff at home. So let's let's do our energy at home and let's build our manufactured goods at home. Simple concept. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one. 0937, someone else is on the phone. Let's go there. Bert in Florence. Hello, Bert. Hey, I'm, I apologize for the noise. I am in a very crowded restaurant. Still on vacation in Florida. I just wanted to say, you hit it exactly right with, you know, you can be Christian. I'm pagan, and that's okay. We can work together, but we need to keep our religion out of our politics as much as possible and not try to force that on everyone else. But remember, all the, all the people that's complaining about Trump right now, I, I know you weren't in politics at the time, and I was just a kid, but I paid attention. When Reagan appeared, everybody hated him. They were all against him. And then all of a sudden, he's the greatest thing to ever walk. And I really think that's exactly what's going to be the case with Trump. Y'all have a great one. I'm going back to my vacation. Thank you, Bird. Appreciate that, <laughs> and, my man. What are you doing listening in Florida when you're on vacation? Yes. That's, we that's, appreciate that. That's kind of encouraging. I want, I want to go to something that Bert said because I, I mean, I've made notes here to myself, as I always do. I, I don't think you can ever take faith out of politics. Men and women serve an elected office believing in certain things, right? I mean, Rev has a belief system. I have a belief system. Freeho has a belief system. What is that belief system predicated upon? I mean, for me, it's the Bible. I mean, it doesn't mean I do exactly what the Bible says do every single time, because I don't. I mean, I know I don't. I'm well aware how flawed and sin-filled I am. But but as a politician, when I go to the state house or the county council chamber, I mean, I can't check that at the door. I am a religious politician. What I think we should try to do is take faith out of policy. You, you know, I mean, you're not going to take faith out of politics because politics involves human beings. Human beings create policy. Where do those human beings come from? Different places, different walks of life, different skill sets, different levels of understanding, different proclivities, different uh, beliefs. You see, I mean, so, so all that goes in kind of the devil's brew, uh, no pun intended, to um, to whether or not the policy uh, has <laughs> a religious connotation there. or not. Um, but, but I've always felt that it's not my job. And maybe this was something I tried to do, you know, as seriously as I could. But it's not my job to, job to impose my religious beliefs via policy. I mean, I've been afforded an opportunity at the county level, state level to be involved in policy making. But as a policy maker, I've never felt it was my responsibility to let my 
uh, religious beliefs dictate what I believed about policy. It's, it's, I just think you got to be careful of that. Um, it doesn't make me any less a Christian. And I have strong feelings about gay marriage. I have strong feelings about transgenderism and, and abortion. And a lot of that, those are based on what? My, my, my religious beliefs. I mean, where, where I, what, what, what I believe life, you know, what, what, what the, who do I believe the giver of life is? Who, who do I believe the sustainer of life is? Who do I believe has warning on the planet? I mean, all of that is religious in nature. But when I sit down with three Democrats and two other Republicans and try to come to some policy decision, I don't think it's my responsibility to say, um, can everybody pray with me before we vote yay or nay on this? I mean, I understand that's what faith leaders want. I just don't think that's what's right for the country. Let's go to the phone. Nobody on the phone? Okay, I'm sorry. Somebody dropped. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Does that make any sense, Rev? I mean, when I say, you know, religion, you're not going to take faith out of politics, but you could potentially take it out of policy. I mean, sure. people are going to bring those um, those those uh, mindsets when when they sit down around a uh, you know a table and try to create policy that advances an agenda or you know inhibits an agenda. I mean, it's human beings of, bring there. You are sure. I mean, your events and experiences are who exactly uh, are they reflective in your the way you see the world. Um, talking about religion and politics and you know some of the uh, moral and social issues. In America today, it's obvious that Yahoo Finance has a different mindset. This is one of the most unusual headlines I've ever seen. In fact, it's just a, a single page here, and I couldn't help but preserve this. Um, Yahoo Finance had as their headline Saturday, sometime during the early morning hours. Uh, I get up early, and I don't, you know, wake my wife up. I do my thing, and we're at the beach. And anyway, I uh, start, you know, perusing the Internet, trying to find content for Monday's show or next week's show. But I read this on Yahoo Finance. This is interesting. You ready? This is verbatim the headline on one of the stories. America is facing a diaper crisis, and the anti-abortion movement is making it worse. You're kidding me. Talking about trivializing life. <laughs> wow. Uh, so Yahoo Finance wow. basically not only thinks that killing off babies in the womb is a solution for um. For a lot of women who have gotten themselves in unfortunate circumstances, it would help with this um, diaper, diaper situation oh we goodness. have in America. Um, you know, that's just that's bizarre to me. You know, and, and at times I think to myself, are these people trying to piss me off? <laughs> I mean, I really do. When I, when I, did, you, I know did you know that I'd wake up at 545 and go online at 615 and, and get that aggravated on an early Saturday morning? I got college football coming. I got some Braves baseball. They're not out of it yet. I mean, there are a lot of things that I've got to be appreciative and thankful and grateful and blessed by. And here I am reading it about six in the morning. America is facing a diaper crisis, and the anti-abortion movement is making it worse. So if the anti-abortion movement will stop trying to save babies' lives, everybody would have plenty of diapers. Mm. I mean, that's just kind of a bizarre. So um, it's obvious those people don't make as part of their policy decision um, faith. So, um, wow. yeah, killing off babies in the womb is a solution, <laughs> in the a reasonable solution the diaper for saving um, diapers. Oh, my God. And I wouldn't doubt if some liberal San Francisco, you know, Democrat would say, um, I mean, they would quote this statistic. They would absolutely quote um, this statistic about running out of diapers, I guess, because we're not having enough abortions. Um, there's the correlation factor mm. there. Hey, um, the market is up, and I don't understand this. Nobody does. But the market futures are up. They'll open in about two or three minutes. But the futures today are up over 300 points. 
um, actually over 400, 401 as we speak. Um, they're predicting a roller coaster ride of a week in store for us. Um, we talked last week about the historical, excuse me, the technical trading, you know, some of these thresholds and I mean, it's algorithmic driven. It's not really the value trader, a person who really gets the, um, the, uh, is it undersold or oversold, undervalued or overvalued. There are these technical trip wires that are in place and these, um, the, what do we call it here? These, uh, they're, they're, they're traders, but they do it in a nanosecond. You know, it's, um, it's, it's all computer based and it's all ag- algorithmic, um, in, in nature. And I just wonder if some of these trip wires see us up to four Oh five now. So when we had, I mean, we're, we're an economy raising interest rates and we believe that inflation is as high as it's ever been. And the economy, I mean, the Dow futures are up 403 points. I mean, I get these. I mean, I think Larry said it a couple of weeks ago, you know, you're not going to have a hundred yard dash down to the, to the bottom. I mean, wherever the bottom is, have we been to the bottom? I don't think so. I mean, Jamie Diamond says that he thinks the bottom is another 20 to 30% down. I mean, they've put uh, billions and billions and billions. I don't want to quote how much, but Diamond says that 2023 is going to present our bank with uh, challenges of um, write-offs and, and bad debt. So they are setting aside, setting aside a higher percentage of capital than they normally would because they see this, they see the storm um, coming. There's this delay. I mean, there, there are these, there are these realities that that don't affect the economy. Uh, who was it talking earlier? It might have been Joe talking about you know some of the input costs and the fertilizer and um, you know we're not we're not experiencing that uptick. I mean, there's a delay uh, period between the farmer having to pay more for fertilizer and food and uh, some of the commodity prices and how that affects or implicates the economy at any given moment. And we're not dealing with that just yet. Most um, analysts I've read said it'll be 2023, maybe mid-2023, before all those um, roosters come home mm-hmm. uh, to roost, so to speak. But um, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. I mean, there's a great deal of uncertainty out there. Um, will the election, we've not talked much about this. Um, I've read some things over the weekend about the election, what if the Republicans gain control of the House and Senate, and they can kind of put a um, put some things in place that change the economic dynamic of of twenty three and twenty four? I said it earlier. I'll say it again. Um, the media has been very reluctant, and academia, the economists in academia, have all been very reluctant to utter the word recession twenty two days from a midterm. But what if the Republicans win the House? What if the Republicans win the Senate? I got to believe there will be much more um, willingness by the media to exclaim ourselves in a in a recession if the Republicans are in charge. I want to do this in real time. I want to look at 538. Had to look at Nate Silver's site over the weekend. I got tied up with the greatest college football game ever. Um, <laughs> and wondering whether Dabo Sweeney or Danny Ford is a better. I mean, imagine a Gamecock fan who asked himself that question. I mean, why do I care about Clemson? Why, why, what you do? I mean, they're your rival, and you, you kind of got a lot of buddies. You got a lot of friends and friendships and, and uh, you know, relationships that cross that um mm, that line. Oh, here you go. You ready? Uh, Nate Silver has the Republicans win of the Senate. Uh, it was up from, uh, it was 32, now it's 34. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of encouraging news there on the Senate. He has the Republicans win of the House. 71 when we checked last week it was about two and three about 60 that's been between 66 and 70 those two numbers may be as high as i've seen those numbers on nate silver's 538 
website, uh, 34 in 100 chance the Republicans have to win the Senate. I mean, I'm arguing it's 50%. And then the House, it's a 71% chance. I'm arguing it's probably um, greater than 90%. Um, the numbers just don't make sense for the Democrats. I mean, when you look at inflation, when you look at um, the economy and, and, and crime, they're just so far underwater. And I've had people tell me or ask me, well, Ken, if that's the case, why is the Senate still in question? Because the Democrats aren't playing a lot of defense. I mean, they're trying to hold Arizona. They're trying to hold Nevada. They're trying to hold uh, Georgia. But other than that, I mean, it's the Republicans trying to hold Ohio, trying to hold, um, you know, uh, well, I mean, they'll hold Alaska because one Republican or another will win. But in, in the 2024, if the Republicans can win control of the Senate, they'll have it for a while. Because in the 2024 midterms, the Democrats are playing defense in 20, I think it's 23 states, and the Republicans are playing defense in, in 10 states. And think about it, guys. I mean, the House runs every two years. The Senate runs in staggered years. They run every six years. So every, every House district in America is on the ballot this election cycle. All Senate districts are not on, excuse me, all states are not on the ballot when it comes to electing a senator. Um, there will be, um, Manchin will be on the ballot. Tester in Montana will be on the ballot. I mean, there will be at least eight or well, probably six or eight hotly contested Senate races where the Democrats play in defense to some disadvantage in the 2024 election. That's why if the Republicans can figure out a way to win, um, they'll hold on control for a while. Nevada or Georgia? I mean, it's kind of an interesting question that some of the uh, insiders are asking. Uh, which is the more important race? Is Nevada more winnable or is Georgia more winnable? The majority of pundits believe that Georgia is a more winnable state. Um, and I have no idea why. I mean, Walker's a football hero and um, got a lot of other things going his way. But um, we're 22 days out, and it seems to me that we're really beginning to focus on on those two states. I'm not saying those. I think to me, Rev, there are three states that we don't know the answer to. I mean, I think, you know, no matter what the media says, I think Laxalt's going to win Nevada. J.D. Vance is going to win Ohio. Petty Murray's going to win Washington. Um, interesting. I want to get my note here real quick. Give me some cover, Rev, for just two seconds. Okay. Because I want, I want to read this verbatim. I read an article in Politico, and I wrote it down Friday, and we didn't get we didn't get to it. But um, in, in Politico, they say, you ready? I mean, this is, I read the article, and this is the topic. I mean, this is the headline of the article. Oregon is in jeopardy. I mean, that four words. Oregon is in jeopardy. Okay. I mean, Politico has an article, and that's, that's the headline. All right. So I read the article. When I see the headline, I'm going like, the hell, they're going to drop in the uh, Pacific Ocean? I mean, I thought it was California. <laughs> you know, I have the fault line, the San, San Andreas fault line. That's why I was going to. So I'm thinking about Oregon. I mean, it's in jeopardy. What does that mean? If you don't believe there's political bias in mainstream media, I mean, it was about Oregon being now up for grabs. They've got a gubernatorial race in Oregon that Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, has become very involved in. Phil Knight is not your typical billionaire. I mean, he doesn't uh, normally get real involved in politics. He's done a great job of creating a brand and kind of dominating the sports merchant, sports apparel uh, marketplace, shoes in particular. Um, but Phil Knight is spending millions of dollars in support of the Republican candidate in Oregon because he says that the Democrats are making Oregon almost uninhabitable. You can't live here. You can't make any money here. Um, well, he's a big donor to the University of Oregon football team, and he's got a lot of it. I mean, he's made a lot of money, and he's willing to do with his money 
um, things that he believes are in Oregon's best interest. He's kind of a native son of Oregon. But, but, but the article in Politico, I mean, the headline, Oregon is in jeopardy. So when you read Oregon is in jeopardy, I'm thinking wildfire, plague, pandemic. <laughs> right. I mean, they had a COVID outbreak. I mean, is something <laughs> going on in Oregon? No, the Republicans have a chance to win in Oregon. Therefore, Oregon says Politico is in jeopardy. Oh and I'm thinking about who didn't catch that? What member of the editing staff did not say, hey, you can't put that in there? I mean, that, <laughs> we just said the quiet part out loud. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't tell them what we, I mean, we can't say how we feel. <laughs> I mean, we, we got to appear to be objective. So Oregon is, Oregon is in jeopardy, not because of a forest fire, not a water shortage, not that it may um, fall, break off and fall in, in the Pacific Ocean, but a Republican has a chance to win the gubernatorial race and feel not, you know, the founder of, of Nike is the person solely responsible for funding the deficit the Republican has, has in Oregon uh, in the name of making Oregon inhabitable and profitable and saving uh, the, the state. So, I mean, to, to me, the headline is the interesting part of this. Oregon is, um, I mean, see, if I, Oregon is not in jeopardy because Phil Knight is realizing how lousy the Democrat policies are and, uh, and why his home state is in imminent threat and danger. So he's um, engaging in quite the major way. I mean, he, it's almost like Peter Thiel, you know, rich guy who says, man, I'm not taking this any longer. I mean, this is home. This is my home state, this place I care about. And um, football teams, you know, and then got the shiny helmets in the locker room with the, with the um, I mean, have you ever seen Oregon's football facility? It is something to behold. I mean, you would expect it at, at Alabama. You would expect it in any of the, um, I mean, Oregon's kind of off the beaten path. And they've made a name for themselves in college football basically because the founder of Nike is a big Oregon uh, what is it? What's their name? The, the uh, Beavers. Yeah, the Oregon. What is it? Ducks. Yeah, the Oregon <laughs> State's the Beavers, right? If I'm not mistaken, Oregon State's not the Beavers? I don't even yeah. know if there's a team called the Beavers. But sure there is. The Badgers. The Badgers? That's, um, that's Wisconsin. That's what, what is it? Oregon State? Oregon. The Oregon, Oregon Ducks. You're right about that. But the Oregon State... Uh, Beavers. Okay, I thought they were. I thought they were the Beavers. Yeah. Do you know how free hawk condescending it was? <laughs> it's a little called, bit like political. Nobody's called the yeah, Nobody's called the Beavers, you dumb Southerner. <laughs> Don't you know that? Oregon is in jeopardy, you dumb Southerner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of the condescending. I mean, you see what I'm talking about? See how condescending these Northern aggressors are? I and, I, and, I, and I know this for a fact. I mean, I don't have to guess. I'm sure the person that works at Politico is a Northern aggressor. That wrote the um, Oregon is in jeopardy, you dumb Southerners. Don't you know that? Um, nobody's called the Beavers. You dumb until they yeah. until Oregon State well, is you called know, when the, you when you the Beavers win these uh, National League uh, <laughs> divisions. Yeah. Well, you get full of yourself, yeah, and you don't think your your feces stinks, and then <laughs> and then you find out the hard way that it that yeah, it's still a wild does. card. Um, want, want to go to another story, but I don't I don't I don't want to get too far behind here. Um, let's what do we have a call? Uh, we have one coming in. Yeah, we're um we're getting calls do, after calls, but for yeah. some stupid reason they're not um they're dropping. They're not going through. So so Nate Silver has the likelihood of the House going to the Republicans as high as he ever has, as well as the Senate. I mean that that number's still not high enough. I mean it's still a better chance than thirty one, thirty two, thirty three. I mean I've got the Senate at about fifty fifty. Uh, we used a number this morning. Uh, the Gamecocks opened at four and a half point underdogs. That gives them a 31% chance to win the game outright. The number went from four and a half to three and a half. I actually saw it in one betting house at three. So when the number goes from four and a half point underdogs to three point underdog, the chance of you winning goes from 31 to 39%. Doesn't change anything about the game except the um, 
the mathematical formulated reality of um of the odds to win. Do we have a call? Let's go there. Verd, Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning. How y'all doing? Hey, Verd. Uh, great weekend. Uh, we had a big crowd in Florence at the uh, kickoff of our um, uh, event in Florence with Mike Page and then Lieutenant Governor with the Speaker. Uh, went on down to Loris and had about 40,000 at that event. And all the campaigns were represented. Russell Fly, Robert Norton, uh, the Sacramento Republican Women's had a tent, and also the Victory 22 group from the Sacramento Public Party, we had tents. So big crowd made a lot of contacts, probably thousands of contacts. And I think the uh, Republican Party is energized these next uh, three weeks and one day to win everything. Thank you, Bird. Appreciate that. All of this while um, the, the, the greatest or potentially the greatest college football game in the history of mankind was played. See, I think there should be some order. I mean, if I were ever to get back in politics, I'd pass a law. I'd pass several laws. But one of my laws would be no political activity or campaigning on days that, that a potential greatest college football game to ever be played is. Uh, we, we know that Vanderbilt and South Carolina is not going to be the greatest game ever, right? But when Tennessee and Alabama are playing, you know there's a chance that's the greatest football game ever. So um, as king of the world, I would say or argue that when there's a chance that the greatest college football game ever to be played could be played, political campaigning is strictly prohibited. Verd wouldn't like that, but the college football mm. universe would. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. There's kind of an interesting uh, paragraph. I don't want to read the whole story, but a paragraph in the Wall Street Journal talking about Major League Baseball. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Why is a divisional round only best of five? After 162 games, shouldn't it take the Padres more than a weekend to slay the rival Dodgers? Would it be easier or fairer for the top seed to play a best of seven, best of nine, question mark, best of 11, best of 13? Why not just keep the Dodgers play in the Padres until you know the Dodgers win. <laughs> so there's kind of a um, you know, a devil's advocate yeah. position to take here. But um, it's kind of interesting. It really talks about is this good for baseball or not? I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. If you're in San Diego, it's good for baseball. If you're in Philadelphia, it's good for baseball. If you're in Atlanta or a Mets fan or maybe, maybe not a Yankees fan, certainly a Dodgers fan, it's not good uh, for baseball. Um the point I'm trying to make is this this 162-game season uh, really should matter more than it does. Rev kind of likes the idea I have about, you know, um, the Padres have to win three or four. I mean, the, the yeah. Dodgers, I mean, with the Padres and Dodgers that's, play, that's pretty clever. the Dodgers are already up one to nothing. They won that Interesting point. idea. Well, I mean, it's a little bit Way like the, 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 the NASCAR race season. I mean, they've got this playoff format now. But Chase Elliott won the regular season. Chase Elliott carries those points with him. So if Chase Elliott has a bad race, he's still able to continue in this um, elimination round. After elimination round, he won that by do- doing so well in the regular season. Is a is a is a one home field advantage uh, a big enough advantage over a wild card? In other words, the Dodgers and Padres are the best example. The Dodgers beat the Padres by 22 games in the regular season, and they're rewarded by getting a extra home game. Uh, for that 22-game thrashing, they gave the Padres over 162 games. Now, there's also the mindset. I've read a little bit about this over the weekend, that these baseball players, you know what they do from April until September? They play baseball. They have a day off every now and then, and they have an all-star break. And all of a sudden, they get a long break, and and you wonder whether you're not better off as a a playoff, you know, the Dodgers and Braves come to mind. Yeah. I mean, they got the long layoff. Five days off. Five days off uh, from playing baseball. 
when they their bodies and minds and heart and soul have been programmed to do what? To play baseball. I mean, you know you got an open date on Thursday. You know you got an open date two Tuesdays from now. But you're playing about six out of seven days most weeks. Um, except that all-star break, you get, what, three or four days off during there. But all of a sudden, at the end of the season, for five days, you know what you don't do? What you've done since April. You don't play baseball anymore. And I've always felt that that kind of gives the – um. I mean, Frio can answer this, but but if I'm a Phillies fan, I kind of believe that I'm going to get the Braves a little bit sleepwalking to begin with. If I'm a Padres fan, I'm thinking about, okay, we all have been playing baseball nearly every day for four months, five months. I've still been playing. I've, I've been doing exactly what I have been doing since um, April. My opponent has not. If I can get out and punch him in the mouth early, you know what I mean? And, and kind of, you know, it's going to take them a little while to get their, their timing back. I mean, I understand rest especially for pitchers. I mean, the pitcher is probably who needs the rest the most. But what about the shortstop whose body is programmed that six out of seven days, I'm going to shortstop. I'm going to swing a bat four times. You know, I got to field uh, 8.1 ground balls. You know, I got to make, you know, 12 throws. I got, you know, the body just kind of becomes accustomed to that. All of a sudden, that shortstop, what have I done for the last five days? Oh, I ate ice cream sandwiches and, you know, um, drink a few beer and watch some baseball <laughs> about this team. I didn't do. It was we're play about baseball. to play, but the Phillies deserve it. I mean, there, there's no question about it. Um, and I wish them well. I mean, I mean this sincerely. I wanted. To, I mean, they're an East Coast team. I pull from the East Coast over the West Coast. I ain't a rapper. I ain't in a gang. It ain't some of the Crips and Bloods and all that kind of stuff. But um, but we're giving it But I mean, I, and I think Philly's a great sports town. I think Philly's one of the two I, or three. I mean, I'm not a big fan right now. I'm still stinging a little from Saturday. Okay, but do you feel like you got screwed? Yeah. See, I don't. Yeah, in in a, in a way. I mean, I, I really don't feel like I, I don't feel like I've been screwed at all. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, but but I mean, with, without saying, I mean, they they did outplay us. I mean, in in the uh, in the framework of the way this thing works, okay, they earned it. So I, congratulations to them. I look at it like this: I think Alabama has a better team than Tennessee, but Tennessee absolutely deserved to win the game. I think the Braves have a better team than the Phillies. Not by much, but by a little bit. But I think the Phillies absolutely deserve uh, to win that series. 843-661-0937. Hey, um, it's Monday. We've been jumping around doing all these other sorts of things. Um, full disclosure, Freehold was playing the um, trivia music. Mm-hmm. I'm not ready. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a trivia question. You don't have a question ready. It'll be takes Tuesdays to make Friday's trivia tomorrow. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. But um, Freehold's doing his job as he should do it. Um, when he when he basically chastises me for Beavers, <laughs> the team named the Beavers, um, and then he kind of you know throws the trivia music in my head and uh, or excuse me in my ear set, and um, I'm not prepared to do a trivia question, but we'll do it tomorrow. I want to I want to dig through the baseball um, statistic kind of Bible and and database and make sure I come up with a good baseball question. There you go. Uh, the Clemson Tigers won a big game against um, Florida State on the road. They've got a big game against Syracuse at home this weekend. I think they're a 13 or 13 and a half point favorite, but we got a programming note, yes. Rebels, to make sure we get clarity. Um, we're not, we're talking politics today and tomorrow, and then we're doing something else. The Children's Miracle Network Radiothon again this year. I think it's the 20th annual Radiothon, and it will be this week. And so, longtime listeners of the show, you remember these are the three days we set aside, and uh, we basically throw the political talk format out the window. And we ask for your help for the children of our region for McLeod Children's Hospital. We'll be doing that Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday this week on this show. So if you've got any political frustration 
buildup and you need to vent, you better do it tomorrow because we don't have but about five seconds today. But tomorrow for Monday, is for you. We'll be Children's Miracle Network Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Enjoy your day.